Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Boom Comic Source collaboration. It's your DC Comic Spotlight for the week of September 19th, 2021. Obviously, the big book of the week, Wonder Woman. Uh, we just had Batman Day. Uh, we did record a Batman uh, Gargoyle of Gotham episode. However, the, the Gremlins got to it and we weren't able to release it on Batman Day like we wanted. Um, maybe we'll get a chance to re-record it at some point, but I'll just say uh, we briefly touched on it last week. It's a fantastic book. Go check it out. Uh, the art is amazing. It's very emotional uh, from Raphael Grandpa. And the thing that really struck me was the relationships, the, the interaction between the characters that uh, Grandpa establishes, whether it's a young Batman and a young Jim Gordon or Batman and Alfred or the, the villain Crytoon and Batman. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. So uh, anything you want to add to that before we jump into this week's books, Rocky? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We generally both liked it. I, the, the whole idea of Batman eliminating the Bruce Wayne uh, identity for, because he believes that the dichotomy of Batman and Bruce Wayne just hinders his crime fighting abilities and his struggle with that, or rather he, he doesn't struggle with that, but that underscores the, the theme of that four issue series of Batman Gargoyle of Gotham and how this new Crytunes character is going to make him come to terms very likely with his Bruce Wayne persona as the series progresses. I think it, uh, I thought it was very well done. I, I love the stylistic art while it might not be for everybody. I personally loved it. It certainly grew on me as I read it and it does come in a black and white noir edition, which I, I do encourage people to read. And it is getting a lot of hype. And I don't think it's all hype. I think it is well-deserved. Uh, and uh, for uh, uh, for the uh, the writer's first time out uh, for Raphael Grandpa, for, for, you know, relatively inexperienced writer, I think he's uh, he's done a pretty good job with it. Yeah, I mean, he, he's done mostly covers for DC, even when you look at his, his work just as a penciler. There's not a lot of stuff there. So yeah. this is really his first chance to get out there in front of a lot of eyes. And, uh, yeah, he nailed it. He, he really hit a home run with that first issue. So, yeah. Overall, uh, like I said, this week, Wonder Woman's the big book. There's a couple of others um, that were pretty damn good as well. And then, of course, some that were not so good. So uh, just a reminder, everybody, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Uh, we're going to go into detail on story and plot points. So if you haven't read the books uh, – and you don't want to be spoiled, you better go and read them first before you uh, watch the yeah. episode. So, uh, and I will say off. that oh, I will ahead. say that we're we're posting the Wonder Woman review separate. Uh, it's a separate uh, in depth review of Wonder Woman number one, uh, both on on the Comic Source podcast and and also on your on your YouTube channel as well, uh, Comic Source YouTube channel. Check that out. Uh, spread the love, and also on the Comic Source podcast and and on this Comic Boom uh, YouTube uh, uh, channel as well. So you get. Three for the price of what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we'll yeah, we'll briefly touch on Wonder Woman in this episode. But yeah, if you want the in-depth, go check it out, um, either audio or on the, the Comic Source YouTube channel. So yeah, uh, yeah how would you feel about the week overall, Rocky? I uh, I thought it was I, – I, I, it was I, – it was okay. It, it was okay. It's a really mixed bag for me. Uh, there's one that particularly made me, frankly, angry that I'm really going to have a hard time. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to comment much about it, to be quite frank, because I, I, I don't want to uh, – I, I, I just – it's not a good idea for me to – I want to limit my comments on it. But some were really, really bad. and But some I thought were really good, and uh, I think you know which ones those are. But overall, I, I was optimistic. I really was. Like, aside from one real big stinker, I do really – I thought it was not a bad week uh, moving forward. 
But boy, the, when it stunk, it stunk. Uh, if I had to guess, I'd say hot girl. Yeah. Bingo! <laughs> God. So the, yeah, so that's interesting because I didn't oh. – it didn't stand out to me at all as – as in a good way or a bad way, it was just kind of eh, whatever. But I know oh. you've been struggling with that title, uh, <laughs> so yeah. And I don't know. I maybe, promise diplomacy. Know, I promise diplomacy. I, I'm not going to go on. A, I'm going to try to minimize my rant. I really will. I promise. You know. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe you have much more of a history with the character, this version of Hot Girls, than I do. So maybe that's why. Maybe this hot, this version of Hot Girls contradicting you know things that have been done before. I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, uh, let's kick it off with uh, one that, that has had us at odds at times, the uh, Gotham War event, part three here with Catwoman 57, Tinny Howard handles the story, Nico Leone on art, Veronica Gandini does the colors, Lucas Catoni on letters. Uh, I will say that the David Nakayama cover is really fantastic. He handles the main cover. And then there is also uh, cover C by Joshua Sway which is uh, this pink background uh, and all of Catwoman sort of in, in shadow, except there's like a band of light across her eyes. It, it feels very eighties, uh, especially with the pink background. Um, but, oh man, is it just an absolutely gorgeous cover? Um, you know, maybe a little photorealistic, but it, it, yeah, it, I think it captures the mood of who Selena is very, very well. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of have some some mixed feelings about this event. We covered it uh, a couple weeks ago when we when we talked about the first um, Batman issue that tied in, which was actually um, the second part uh, after the Battle Lines one shot, the first uh, Batman tie in. So uh, off the revelation last issue, kind of the cliffhanger ending that Vandal Savage has bought Wayne Manor. Uh, this one kicks off with. Uh, Batman uh, confronting Vandal and Vandal basically saying, Hey, I, I did it all legally, man. I, I own this. I own this now. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and then uh, Bruce goes out and he's at the grave of his parents and um, he's, he's, he's having a tough time. Batman, it feels like is on the verge of a breakdown here. Um, Zdarsky's really been putting him through his paces, whether it's fail safe or Zernar or traveling to, you know, an alternate, dimension where things are very different. Um, he's having a tough time. So uh, again, I don't think he's, he's necessarily thinking rationally. He does something here um, that even Jason Todd is surprised about. Jason Todd is basically a distraction while uh, Catwoman is use, ha, using her trainees to steal a bunch of cars. And so Jason Todd leads uh, Batman away from that, where that's happening at this ballet and Todd thinks he's getting away, saying, yeah, the only way Batman's going to stop me, he literally, if he yanks, you know, uses his, his grappling hook to yank me off the back of my motorcycle, he wouldn't do that because, you know, he might kill me. And lo and behold, Batman does it, right? All under the guise of, I I'm trying to save you, Jason. I'm trying to protect you. So it's it's pretty clear to me that Batman is is leaning toward being unhinged. I mean, the guy's on the verge of being out of control here with sort of a – a reasoning or an excuse or a justification that we've heard so many times, you know, well, I'm doing it out of love. I'm doing it, you know, out of what's best for you. You know, this is, you got to, uh, you know, break some eggs to make an omelet and what have you. Uh, but it, again, I, the thing that I go 
keep going back to over and over and over with the way he's handling the Selena situation, the way he's just spinning out of control is Batman is such a logical character most of the time, right? Like he's methodical. He plans things out. He sort of has to, because in terms of, you know, pure power level, the guy's not on the same, he doesn't have any superpowers. He, He's not supposed to be on the same level as, as you know, Superman or Darkseid or something like that. When you, you talk about just pure uh, superhuman abilities, you know, uh, it's his tactical mind. It's his ability to, to plan and to th- outthink somebody, uh, to be two steps ahead or whatever. When he's reacting out of emotion, uh, when he's reacting impulsively, I think all that kind of goes out the window. So, you know, I, again, I'm not privy to any sort of insider knowledge or whatever, but it, it does seem to be or seem to me that this story is setting it up as it's not that Selena's right, but Batman's not right either. You know, I said that before when we were reviewing this, it's possible in a situation for both people that I, you know, are in conflict to both people to be wrong. Selena's answer of nonviolent crime, while admirable in that it's going to end up with less people being dead, it's still crime. It's still wrong. There are still people that are going to suffer and you could say, Oh, well, it's only the rich that suffer, right? They, they can afford to be robbed or whatever. You know what happens if all the rich people get robbed? Then all the insurance rates go up and not just the insurance rates for the rich people, for everybody. It goes up for everybody. And so then you're, you're, you're harming everybody. You're literally harming everybody to the point of, you know, it's going to actually affect, you could make the argument, it actually hurts people on the lower end of the financial spectrum more because it's a greater percentage Right, it's a greater percentage for that shrinking middle class to protect their homes uh, with insurance, uh, and then maybe some that are just barely hanging on. Now they're homeless. Now they turn to crime. Like it's just a bad cycle. It's not an answer. What Selena is proposing is not an answer, right? So I'm not on her side, but I'm not on Batman's side either. There's something to be explored here, um, because again, I, I know it seems far fetched that it that it would really happen uh, if Batman was gone for two months, that crime would really drop 75%. You know, it, it just doesn't seem feasible. It doesn't seem logical. It could happen in such a short period of time, even if Selena is over there, you know, pulling the strings and being a, a Svengali. Um, but I, I can only go by what editorial tells us. And this is what they're telling us has happened. So there's got to be worth in that, Batman. You got to, and again, if I think if he was thinking clearly, if he's thinking logically, he's going to take a step back and go, wait, why is this the case? Did, first of all, he's going to be doubting it. Did crime really drop 75%? He's going to go investigate that. And he's going to try to find a way to, to sustain that while also stopping the burglaries, right? He's not going to just fly off the handle and declare war unless – He's not thinking clearly, which clear, which to me, that's where we're at in the story. So it's, it's interesting because there's no easy answer. It plays with the gray areas. It's a little meta. Um, I thought the art was good. Uh, and then we did get a revelation at the end. It turns out that Vanda Savage, he's been planning this for a while. And one of the, the women that is in Catwoman's crew, Marquise, who's sort of her, her number one lieutenant, if you will, it turns out that she's actually Vandal Savage's uh, daughter. And apparently her name is Scandal. I don't know if she's, um, if Vandal Savage has been known to have a daughter before. Oh, yeah. This is the first rev- revelation I, I, of it, Scandal. Oh, I should tell you, I, <clears throat> well, I've, Scandal is actually, was very popular back in the, in the 2000s. She was a member of Secret Six, Gail Simone's Secret uh, Six. Gotcha. She's extremely, well, 
I personally think she's ext- is very very well known, and frankly, uh, she she hates her father, which I've got some issues here. I don't know if she's whether or not this is a poor characterization on the part of Zardaski or uh, Howard, why she would ever work with her father. I, I find that somewhat baffling, but I think she might. I'm, I suspect she might be a double agent, or she might be trying to manipulate to get into a position of power herself. Uh, because it is interesting that Vandal Savage in this issue does approach Selena at the ballet, and he clearly wants to uh, Selena to work for him. Vandal Savage is making a power play, and he's using his daughter Scandal Savage uh, as Marquis to do it. And I, I keep thinking, I'm hoping that Scandal Savage is ultimately going to betray her father, but we don't know. But So the jury's still out on that, but that's really fascinating, and I encourage everyone to pick up back issues of Secret Six of Gail Simone's, because if you want to know a lot about Scandal Savage, in particular, she had her she had a relationship with another female member of the C- of the Secret Six as well, so it's uh, it's actually probably one of DC's best, uh, most beloved series that not enough people are reading in back issues. <laughs> oh, sorry, you're on mute. Yeah, I'm not familiar with her. So um, if she is so well known, I, I'm kind of surprised that nobody recognizes her. She's able to pass off this Marquise just by just by disguising the color of her eyes, by disguising her eye color. So. Anyway, yeah. what do you think of it uh, beyond uh, Scandal Savage? Well, I, I you know, you, you make you made a lot of comments about the whole, you know, the the whole the central premise of this is the, the struggle that the Bat family is having. Batman is struggling with his mental health, uh, with his, his Batman of Zarana persona, persona, and he's and the dichotomy. What I, I will give some credit to Teeny Howard. What she does here, there's a scene where where Selina talks about, you know, she's. Uh, Selena is she gives a speech to the thieves guild she she refers to her little she she actually referred to her little operation like a like a guild of thieves a, a thieves guild and she's bringing she's created stability amongst all the thieves but Batman is catching up to them and causing havoc and and the thieves uh trust in Selena is eroding at the same time just as the thieves trust in Selena is eroding in her thieves guild in her little mafia thing she's got going on the bat fam batman fears that his bat family is losing faith in him that what he created the bat family to do fight crime that they've lost faith and trust in him in fighting crime and so we've got these two competing agendas here that batman and selena they both they both batman and catwoman both love each other while at the same time they're both afraid of losing their their trust from people who it forms a central part of who they are. For for Selena, she's a thief, and for Batman, he fights crime. And so that was really that dichotomy. I think really shone through in this particular issue. Uh, one of the uh, at one point in this issue, Selena is is setting up the. Uh, there's a ballet where where all the rich are attending a ballet, and she she has all her. Uh, pickpocket thieves infiltrating the ballet robbing the rich in the middle right in the, in the ballet right and and she's she even has jason todd be uh take control of the valet service with the vehicles and and he's gonna have she's gonna have thieves steal all the rich people's cars and of course batman becomes uh privy to that but while this is all going on and this distraction is occurring nightwing shows up and how did nightwing know selena was there well nightwing says he remembers that this was selena's favorite ballet and nightwing says he shows he showed up to talk to selena but what he doesn't do is we never he never actually talks about what he showed up to talk about it, it was 
I thought it was a really badly done scene in, in so far as on the one hand, Nightwing tells, reminds Selena that, that where Selena even says that, you know, she, she's reminded of how petty it is that they should be fighting over this. And Nightwing says, yeah, well, think about that. And he basically leaves. But what he also said, but he doesn't actually say why he stopped by to have a conversation in the first place. And Nightwing shows up and he doesn't know that something's going on. And he has to know that Selena's at a ballet. He doesn't think that it's going to be robbed. Nightwing's completely in the dark. It's, I find it hard to believe that Nightwing is just that foolish and that stupid. Would it now I, I'm going to choose to think that Nightwing doesn't know that the ballet is being robbed, that Jason Todd is there undercover, et cetera, et cetera. But again, they, they, they're not having this conversation. And every time you would think that a member of the Bat family would have the conversation they should be having, they don't. They show up and then they leave. And it's very, very frustrating. And it, it loses some verisimilitude for me. But the, the central character flaws and the character uh, the, 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 the central gist of this particular issue is Batman injects Jason Todd. He catches up with Jason Todd. He injects Jason Todd with something that freezes him, that affects his actions. We don't know exactly how. We'll know in the next chapter. And, um, and, and so Batman clearly is taking far more aggressive action than he ever has in the past because he's afraid of losing his Batman family. And he's like an overprotective father. He, he doesn't want to lose them. And it's, it's adversely affecting how he responds to members of the Bat family. And it's really unfortunate to see. And, um, well, it, you know, uh, uh, it is what it is. I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of this. I'm not really buying into the central thesis of this of this particular event. But I, I will. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't intrigued, and I'm really curious to see how this will all end. But uh, overall, this was a mixed bag for me. This issue, uh, but it it has to be a mixed bag in order to make this narrative work and um, be interesting to see how this is going to be long term. How people are going to look back on on this on this bat event. Yeah, that's interesting that you thought that Nightwing didn't accomplish what he went there to do. I thought he did it brilliantly. I thought his whole point was to remind Selina they're a family and they shouldn't be fighting. Um, so I, I took it the other way, like how smart he was to show up there where he knows Selina's going to say, well, how did you find me? And he's going to get to relay that story. The whole point of him going there, in my mind, was so he could relay the story of going to that ballet with Bruce and Selina and reminding Selena of their connections and their past, um, you know, and says, Hey, this is something you should be thinking about, but I could see it your way as well. I mean, that's not necessarily made clear. I, I guess I'm just giving Tinny the benefit of the doubt because that really would be the only way to make it make sense. Otherwise it'd be like, he shows up, she asks the question, he tells her, and then he leaves. And then he's like, Oh wait, I forgot why I, I came in here in the first place. That, that's something we do, right? That's something old men do where you get up and you walk into the other room to get something and you walk in the room and you go, wait, why did I come in here again? Huh. You would hope that, you know, Nightwing's a little better than that, but um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not why he, he well, no, he did. He did do that. I mean, he clearly did that. I'm just saying that how would he know she'd be on the balcony of all things? Uh, he'd have to go inside. So he would have to have brought a change of clothes, but she happened to be on the balcony. And then when he's there, he, he, he just went with him, not knowing, not seeing that other things were going on inside. I mean, it's, I just, well, he didn't I, go. I yeah. I mean, in my time. mind, yeah. In my it's, mind, he doesn't go inside. He waits on the balcony. Again, he knows Selena inside and out you know, as well as, as he knows Bruce. And so, yeah, he knows all he has to do is wait above the balcony and she's going to be out there alone at some point. Um, yeah. uh -huh. 
But then I, I he mean, also I, knows I, that she's a thief and, and she's committing a crime. And so I, I still have a hard time. I have a very hard time accepting that this is just all about the personal bat family. This is about he, letting he, somebody yeah, go, get away with crime. He, he like, 100%. Why, why would Selena go anywhere? Why would Selena ever be outside of one of her hideouts or her apartment? If she's outside one of her hideouts or her apartment, it's one of two things. She's going to see Bruce or she's committing a crime. A hundred percent. And Nightwing knows that. That the I don't think the point was him going there to stop to stop the the whatever Selena's up to. He of course he knows Selena's up to something. But I think he looks at it more as he's trying to de-escalate the situation. He still feels like he couldn't really take Selena in because you know, he just doesn't have sort of approval from Bruce to really do that because of the way things are right now. So so let's assume that he knows exactly what's going on. What exactly is he supposed to do? Is he supposed to go in there and beat up all the party guests that are stealing from the other party guests and get in a fight with Selena? Like like what what would you have had him do? I, I don't know other than he's he's playing the long game and, and confronting her and saying, Hey, think about the way that you're pitting family against family here. Um, you know, cause he wants to solve it long-term rather than short-term bad blood, go, go in there and beat up again, part, you know, party guests. It's hard to tell who's who, cause they're all wearing masks and who's the villains and who's not. He'd have to go in there with a bunch of members of the bat family to right. stop the crime. And, you know, like I, then you run the danger of hurting innocent people. I, I guess he could have had the GCPD show up and, you know, lock it all down. Well, no, no, I don't think uh, I choose to think that Nightwing doesn't know, because if Nightwing did actually know that Selena was up to something, I would think Nightwing would say, by the way, Selena, if you actually cared about Batman, you would cease all operations until we have this discussion. Because you know you're just going to provoke him. Why don't why, why don't you cease your operations? Uh, hold off until we've spoken to Bruce, as opposed to continue to create distractions and co- commit, continue to commit crime. Uh, you know why don't you until we have this discussion? Why don't you cease all your operations until we as we move forward? That would be a rational thing. Let's just have a status quo. Let's wave the white flag. Both parties and their you know. And let's just have a conversation. No member of the Bath family's done that yet, and uh, it's unfortunate. Although, look. In order for this narrative to work, I guess things things are happening really quick here. I get it. There's a lot of moving parts, and 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 I and I get it. I just you know, and and Batman is clearly, uh, he's clearly being adversely affected by the Batman or Zorana, and he's 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 clearly being pushed to, toward the edge. And I still think that obviously he was affected by some way when he was in the multiverse there, with the multiverse of Zorana's occupying his mind. Something is really amiss here. Yeah, I mean, really, there's three sides. There's there's Catwoman's side or Selena's side. There's Bruce's side. And there's everybody else that's on their own side, sort of caught in the middle. Doesn't they don't really know? <laughs> I just feel like they're they don't know what to do. They're they're just but you know, mom and dad are fighting. Uh, we don't know what to do. Let's keep our heads down. Try to stay out of it. Hopefully, they work it out. Anyway, uh, that's uh, Gotham War. If anything, is going to continue to be a contentious. Uh, subject. So you guys get to listen to Rocky and I go back and forth on it uh, for (laughs) a few more parts anyway. Uh, All right. Up next, we have Batman Superman World's Finest, number 19, written by Mark Wade. Travis Moore is the artist. Tamara Bonvillon on colors. Steve Wands on letters. I don't have a heck of a lot to say on this one. The Travis Moore art, 
Uh, you know, it's solid. It's what you expect from Travis Moore, but I, I don't think that his art is best suited um, for superhero comics. I feel like his his stuff. Uh, sorry, there's a fly drive me crazy. Uh, his stuff's in my mind best suited for um, kind of slice of life stuff. Um, but that being said, this art is fantastic, especially the action scenes. Superman fighting Jaxer is is pretty awesome. We also get uh, because it's Mark Wade. You know, we get some DC history. It's additive in a way. I, I always struggle. I talk about. I talked about this a lot with uh, Brian Michael Bendis's run on Superman. You can you can go too far, right? In adding context and history and new plot points and story points to the origin of of heroes. And and you know, I'm not saying that Mark Wade has done that here, but it's a risk that you run, right? So now we find out that part of why the Kryptonian Science Council didn't want Joel Rail to build ships is, has to do with Jack's Ur. Um, and so that's, you know, a little different than, than what we've been told before. So it's hard to know what, what is the real truth of the description of Krypton? Does it have to do with Rogel Zar? Does it have to do with Jack's Ur? Is it, is it everything? It's like, man, if they really had all this stuff going on, it's surprising that the planet didn't explode earlier. They had so many problems. Uh, why is it talked about as this like advanced civilization where, you know, most of the populace was very happy and, and content and, you know, there's no poverty or whatever, man, they had all kinds of problems apparently. So yeah, it, it's a little, it's a little convoluted. It's, it's a little problematic in my mind, but in terms of just a, a fun story, and if you don't think about that continuity stuff, it works on a, a really great level. It's not the most original way to defeat Jaxer, you know, right out of Superman 2 um, with the Phantom Zone projector not actually being the Phantom Zone projector. Um, <laughs> so I did I did appreciate that. Uh, we did see the return of a villain that we hadn't seen in a long time, uh, Ether, the Messiah, who pre-crisis was like the only native inhabitant of the Phantom Zone. He's showing up here. I don't know if he's really shown up anytime recently in uh, in the DC universe. Uh, definitely not since Rebirth. Uh, but I don't even know if he's shown up post-crisis. I, I imagine he would have had to at some point. I mean, that's, that's 30 years at this point. But um, he's introduced here uh, or reintroduced here with, with Mark Wade as more of sort of, sort of a, a new character, or at least a new version of him. And we're told that uh, the story of Aether is going to be continued in the pages of Action Comics in 2024, next year. Uh, and then next month, Batman and Superman journey into the world of Kingdom Come. So obviously we saw uh, before um, the young boy, I can't remember, what was it, Thunder, Thunder Boy or whatever? Um, yeah, which, I think, yeah, I think Boy yeah, Thunder or something, yes. Boy Thunder, yeah, and he was, uh, all the hints were that he was actually um, Magog, right, the young version of Magog, who's kind of the big bad of um, of Kingdom Come. So uh, that's, you know, Kingdom Come, Alex Ross art, written by Mark Wade, seminal, evergreen title from DC. So I expect Boy Thunder to show back up. I expect that to be explored a little bit more. Uh, but as far as the uh, action comics more Ether the Messiah in 2024. Does that mean that Philip Kennedy Johnson's going to be exploring that? Or does that mean that Mark Wade's finally going to get a chance to write action comics, which has been a lifelong dream for him? Uh, I welcome either one, uh, I have to say. Um, so we'll have to see how that all plays out. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, uh, finest? 
I like how Mark Wade sort of uh, stated uh, some of the quiet parts out loud in regard to Jack Sir because Jack Sir uh, he he repeats Jack Sir's classic uh, super classic origin and that is Jack Sir uh, did crash did in the uh, when crypt back in the past Jack Sir was a criminal who uh, whose actions led to the destruction of one of the moons of Krypton where thousands of Kryptonians died and it was a result of that that Jack Sir was sent to the Phantom Zone by Jor El. And uh, Superman says something that was not it was never made, I think, explicitly clear in past in in base, frankly, Silver Age issues where Jaxer appeared. And that is that it was that it was Jaxer's actions that ultimately led to uh, the High Council of Krypton deciding not to, you know, they put a ban on space travel because it was the, a spaceship that Jaxer had uh, screwed up on upon construction that crashed in and destroyed a moon on one of Krypton's moons. And so Jaxer indirectly contributed to Krypton's destruction because, but for that, perhaps more Kryptonians could have been saved and there wouldn't have been such a distaste toward the idea of space travel. And so that that's interesting that Mark Wade is, is, is showing that. Uh, one of the things that Mark Wade's clearly doing here. He's doing it in World's Finest Teen Titans. He's rewriting the past, Teen Titans past. Teen Titans past is no longer in the 1960s. It's in the 2010s or the 2000s. And just like Superman's past with Jack Sir, and this is the first introduction, this is the first time that Batman be- became aware of the Phantom Zone. That sup- that this is the first time that, that Batman, uh, Superman uh, battled Jack Sir. Uh, he was aware of him, but he was the first time he battled him. Mark Waid is updating the past is updating the continuity that we're already familiar with, but with modern day sensibilities and modern day interpretations. And Mark Wade has to do that. And I think he's doing that on purpose because if, if the only way to get, frankly, modern day readers or new readers into comic books, you have to update, you have to update the past in the best way possible with the best stories possible with the best writers possible. And I think that's what's going on with world's finest here and uh, world's finest team Titans uh, with perhaps mixed effect. But th- this is a title that most people generally like. I like, I like the, uh, a lot of this stuff is touched upon longtime readers. We can Mark Wade's touched upon the phantom zone. Uh, people on, for whatever reason, there's cracks in the phantom zone that, and these cracks are causing the, uh, villains in the Phantom Zone to be able to telepathically read and control and manipulate some people on Earth. And even Alfred and some Gothamites get sucked into the Phantom Zone because the boundaries between the Phantom Zone and our reality are sort of coming, it's becoming frayed in large part because of this manipulations of this Arthur the Messiah. And uh, it's funny, I... I'm drawing a blank on Arthur the Messiah. You do, you don't remember Scandal Savage? I don't remember Arthur the Messiah. So, uh, you know, we owe each other a beer. Uh, I, I just plain, I, I can't remember Arthur the Messiah. My life depended on it. So I'm going to have to Google it, but it just goes to show you there's so many characters in the DC universe. And I like the fact when there's, I like when I don't know something because I get to go back and Google it and look this, you know, I'm always excited. I don't mind not knowing something because I can, I, with comic books, I can always go back and Google it. And now I'm excited to, to, you know, maybe read, go on DC online or the DC uh, universe uh, website and, and I'll Google some old stories of Arthur the Messiah. But I enjoyed this. Uh, Mark Way continues to do what I like, li- love what he's been doing from the beginning with World's Finest, making the old stories in the Silver Age new again with modern day sensibilities. Yeah, we're Aether, it's not, this is not like it's a character that, that showed up a whole heck of a lot. You know, it didn't really um show up in, in in a lot of stories like I said maybe maybe five times in the history of DC comics has this character 
shown up. Uh, I know it was in that, um, was it the late seventies or early eighties? There was, um, there was a phantom zone, um, or maybe it was, maybe it was in DC comics presents. Uh, he showed up and then I think, I think there was a phantom zone, um, uh, mini series at one point, uh, in the, in the real early eighties, like maybe 81 or 82. Uh, and he showed up there as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, he's not, he's not, um, a, a, a well-known character, a character that showed up a lot. Um, but you know, leave it to Mark Wade. He probably read it. He probably read those, um, that Phantom Zone miniseries when he was a kid or that DC comics presents, uh, issue when he was a kid again from mm-hmm. the very early eighties and, and decided to, to, you know, pull this guy out of the mothballs, uh-huh. if you will, which again, make, it makes it, uh, very easy for Wade to use him in whatever way he sees fit. Cause he doesn't have a lot of history. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Cyborg number three from writer Morgan Hampton. Tom Rainey's the artist, Michael Atea on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, I really enjoyed the art in this issue. Uh, I can be a little overly critical of Tom Rainey at times and his, uh, anatomy, but I really enjoyed the art here, especially the, the scenes where, um, the characters are supposedly in, in the digital world. Uh, I thought that worked really well. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of credit to both, uh, Tom Rainey and Michael Atea, uh, the color artist who does a really great job. We also get for the first time in a DC comic Atlas, the robot who previously has only shown up in Teen Titans Go cartoon. This is his first appearance in uh, DC continuity. So speculator alert, I guess, if you think that he'll uh, eventually be some uh, really popular character like Harley Quinn, you better pick this up. Um, but I, I did appreciate what was going on here from uh, Morgan Hampton in terms of the explanation of how Silas Stone is how his consciousness, how his personality, how his um, intelligence, if you will, is in this uh, in this robot from uh, what's the the name of the company? Solus. Yeah, Solus. Solus. Yeah, Solus. Solus. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so we get the origin of that, which is pretty interesting, and uh, it is a little predictable at the end, where we see sort of this almost this new version of Atlas after Cyborg basically beats the crap out of him. Uh, we get sort of this new version of him and the, uh, or maybe it's not a new version of Atlas, but it's, it looks like this leveled up sort of Android type robot. And, you know, ba- based on what happens in the story and everything that we're told and the way it's all played out, the way it's foreshadowed that it, it's clear that the digital, um, personality or the l- digital personification of um, of the guy who uh, uh, Marcus, the guy Marcus. who, yeah. yeah. All right, you just uh, cut off there, uh, Jace. All right, so uh, Jace was just cut off there. I'm not sure if he's going to pop back on any time. He might have to come back in. So uh, in any event, as Jace sort of works out his uh, 
because he's been uh, there's been this minor disruption. He's going to have to go in and go out. But just to continue on here, the, 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 in this in this issue, Marcus uh, Mark it, it gives the history of Marcus. Marcus applied for a job with uh, Silas Stone, and Marcus basically proposed to Silas Stone uh, a way to encode DNA, uh, upload DNA into a server, so that people could essentially live forever. Uh, it, it's a new form of immortality. So what I what was very fascinating about this and uh, kudos to uh, the writer Morgan Hampton is that he takes the idea instead of uh, instead of manipulating time through uh, time travel or through a Lazar resurrection through a Lazarus pit he it's basically resurrection by the perpetuation of DNA encoded into a computer program and an algorithm that forever permanently encodes a person's DNA into a digital consciousness and so that is one way upon which one person could live forever forever so it's taking the idea of artificial intelligence ai and sort of putting a new spin on it by incorporating dna and it, what's interesting here is uh, silas stone because he's he's also he he's he's thinking so much about the science of it is that he really thinks more about silas stone is thinking far more about the scientific advancement of humankind because uh he doesn't he lost his wife and so silas stone he of course he lost his wife uh cyborg's mother and he doesn't want anyone else to suffer that kind of loss and the idea that if only he could have went back and saved the life of his wife uh, by essentially uh, encoding her DNA into this sort of a computer consciousness. Uh, no one else has to suffer the loss that Silas Stone himself suffered. And so that would that's sort of like the central gist behind uh, the motivation of Silas. But of course, it goes awry when Mar- when, uh, when both Marcus and Silas uh, in, in, in this digital realm, they, got, they get caught up in this digital realm. And ultimately, Marcus becomes uh, corrupted and he wants to perpetuate this power and, be- and control everything, whereas Silas needs to shut it down because... Uh, it can become corrupted and used for evil purposes, as of course always happens in these types of stories. On, yeah, sorry about that, everybody. My my internet went out. I suppose the machines weren't happy with what I was about to say uh, regarding this. So yeah, um, it's it it's an interesting take, and in, in terms of people living forever and what have you, uh, you know, cyborg. Obviously, that's a great title to explore this in this whole idea of. AI that we're kind of dealing with and how it can replace us in, in our real lives. And Marcus is going beyond that, right? Like he says at the beginning, this is an AI. This is something beyond that, um, which <laughs> the way that they capture the brainwaves of everybody, you know, I love how it says, oh, well, these people, they have their earbuds in at least half the day. Maybe little kids do or young kids. <laughs> Maybe that's their generation. I, I certainly don't. That, that took me, I was like, okay. Uh, I guess maybe if young younger generation listen to music that much or podcasts or what have you. Hope you listen to the comic source at least. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. What is what is interesting is in terms of of you know capturing this consciousness and exploring what it what it means to be human, right? Like if you capture everything about a person, their intelligence, their memories, their personality, uh, you know their brain patterns, and then plant it in some artificial life form it stands to reason that the artificial life form and the, and the actual person whose information is being copied, uh, they would react the same in the same situation, right? Initially, but the longer they both exist, they're going to have different experiences that are unique to them and they're each going to grow and evolve and change. So it's not really 
you know, a copy of the person. I suppose if the original organic body dies, then there, there's no saying there's the, the artificial one wouldn't be more close or as close as could be to what the uh, organic person would have been had they kept living, maybe it's terminal disease or accident or what have you, except for your behavior is going to be different if you're copied and you're an artificial person. Because number one, you're going to make different decisions based on the fact that you're now functionally immortal. Something happens to you, you can be damaged. Plus, you're also, you never have to make decisions based on your own survival. If you want to go jump off a 30 foot bridge, you can jump off a 30 foot bridge. It doesn't matter. You can be repaired. I'm never going to go jump off a 30 foot bridge, right? Uh, because I know I'll be badly injured if not killed. So, Again, it's an interesting idea to explore what makes us human and what have you. Uh, not necessarily the mo most original in terms of the way things are going here. It's clear that the digital version of Marcus – well, it's clear that the, the regular organic version of Marcus has his issues, right? Megalomania and, and he's not stopping to ask himself if he should do this thing. He's just asking himself if he can, which is – you know, scientists have yeah. made that mistakes many, many times throughout human history. If there's anything that shows that humans really aren't very smart, it's that. Yeah. Can we do this thing? Yeah, we can. Okay, let's do it. They don't stop to ask, well, should we? I mentioned, uh, I mentioned, Jace, when you were uh, temporarily off the air there, that I really thought it was interesting what Morgan, what writer Morgan Hampton did, because he talks about, he, he, he talks about time travel. And he also talks about, you know, this isn't the Lazarus pit. This isn't time travel. This isn't a resurrection. And yet it's AI. And it, it's very interesting that in, we actually have AI in our real world and we don't have a Lazarus pit or time travel in our world, but AI sufficiently advanced, and in particular, the creative way that Morgan Hampton is sort of creating the AI with the DNA imprint in this computer program, it is kind of an interesting take on AI, I thought, in, in the context of the DC universe, alongside maybe re resurrection seen in the context of changing time, or even resurrection via a Lazarus pit, to have essentially a kind of resurrection via DNA in a computer program. I thought that was kind I thought that was pretty interesting, especially Silas's take on wanting no one wanting no one else to suffer like he did in losing his wife. And so I, I thought Morgan I think Morgan's done a uh, Hampton's done a good job with that. At least that's what that's what impacted me when I, I when I read the story. Yeah, I want to be careful to clarify. This is not AI in terms of what AI is defined as. And Hampton does say that in the beginning, when Marcus first approaches Silas Stone, and he says, "Let me tell you why AI is not the future." So this is not this is not intelligence that's artificially created. So AI is you know created whole cloth, right? You start with whatever a few lines of code, and it becomes this sentient thing. Uh, and obviously, we, although we that term is thrown around a lot. AI, we ha we don't truly have AI. No one's been able to create artificial life or artificial intelligence yet. And thank God, because it really will go the way of, um, <laughs> you know, Cyberdyne systems and Skynet and all that, like in the Terminator movies. Uh, because what's happening here is th this intelligence and the personalities, whatever, they're, they're coming from a, an actual organic person. So, you know, he calls it, uh, what does he call it? He calls it, uh, he calls it uh, a living code, um, this, you know, DNA, this dynamic, uh, you know, app, he calls it user's DNA sample, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a, yeah, living code is basically uh, what he calls it or organic mechanics that use that living code or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, it's about prolonging life. It's about living forever, but um, you basically, you're creating a digital copy of somebody. So it's not, 
it's not art. It, it's a it's a copy. It's not actual you know intelligence that's been artificially created. But that's neither here nor there. The point of it being that you can explore these ideas. If you're coming from Marcus, who you know I think is a in terms of his organic person, he's a flawed character. Those those flaws get copied, right? And when you start thinking about some of the decisions that uh, an immortal version of this flawed character will create, you start to see where this is headed, which is not a good place, which is hinted at at the end where we th- see this advanced robot, uh, you know, almost like an upgraded version of of uh, Atlas, who's, who Cyborg fights. Uh, and we know that that's probably where the digital personality uh, of Marcus lives and it's going to, he's going to fight Cyborg. For those not familiar, Atlas, uh, I, I think I was gone when I said, I kept talking for a long time when I didn't realize my internet was up. So Atlas has, this is his first appearance in a DC comic, a la Harley Quinn comes from the animated uh, universe. So if you think Atlas will be as popular as Harley, we all know how much Batman, the adventures number 12 is worth. So maybe you want to pick up a copy of cyborg number three, but he's, uh, he's a character from the teen Titans cartoon and he shows up here for the first time. Obviously, if you read the story, uh, Cyborg talks like he's known him bef- and fought him before, although, again, he hasn't shown up uh, in the comics. So, yeah, this is fun. Uh, I, I do appreciate what Morgan Hampton is doing. Like I said, is it th- this idea of what it means to be human, if you're a digital copy and, and that sort of thing, and what it means to be immortal, it could be something Cyborg struggles with. I mean, I don't. It hasn't really been explored a lot because Cyborg really hasn't been around for a long time in terms of like actual comic time, you know, even in the real world, 1981, I think he showed up. So he hasn't really been around that long in real time. When you start talking about uh, him thinking, and there's been Superman stories that have explored this, like, is he going to outlive everybody that he loves and knows and what have you? Because he he's an artificial he does have human parts, but he has, he's mostly artificial. So what happens when everybody he knows and loves dies, right? Um, so that's something that's interesting to be explored. I also want to mention the DNA cover, David Nakayama cover, which is orange and is absolutely gorgeous. I hope everyone had a chance to listen to my interview with David from last week. He talks a lot about why he, uh, his covers, uh, why he uses color so dramatically in his, in his covers and why that a lot of times it's one color in particular. So I hope you guys all have a chance to check that out. And I did forget to mention on the Batman Superman world's finest, there's a Nicholas Cage cover. Uh, longtime DC fans will remember that Nicholas Cage was going to play Superman in the Superman Returns movie uh, directed by Tim Burton. Thank God. I think that would have been horrible. <laughs> I'm not a Tim Burton fan. Thank God it never came to pass. But there is a, a cover by uh, Dan Mora, cover C on World's Finest, that gives a depiction of maybe what Nicholas Cage would have looked like in costume. Well, we know what Nicholas Cage would have looked like in the movies because he was in the Flash movie. Yeah, that, the flash God, that AI, <laughs> AI, got me the AI, that CGI in the Flash movie, best, yes. best left not commented on. Right. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Uh, Green Lantern War Journal, number one, from uh, writer Philip Kenny Johnson. Art is by Montos. Colors by Adriana Lucas. Letters by Dave Sharp. Again, hope you guys all had a chance to listen to my chat with um, with Philip Kenny Johnson about this. If you didn't, I encourage you to go back and check it out. One thing I do want to mention uh, when we covered Green Lantern 3 last week and we got the third part of uh, the backup, which then leads into this Green Lantern World Journal, I, I, I said, God, they should have put out the third part of the backup before they put out the first issue of Green Lantern World Journal because I thought this had already came come out because I read a super advanced copy so that I could have my uh, interview with Philip Kenny Johnson. So apologies to everybody. Apologies to DC. Um, this does come out at an appropriate time. 
And uh, it, it's fantastic. The big thing, I won't say a lot about it because, um, again, you can go listen to my, my chat with Philip Kennedy Johnson. But the big thing that stuck with me about it is just how uh, John Stewart is trying to adjust to life back on Earth. Uh, and PKJ even mentioned it when we talked, uh, specifically the scene where John is sitting at a, a red light in his truck. And he's got his, like his head down on the stream. Well, just life seems to be going so slowly, so slowly because he's used to, you know, mile a minute out there in space fighting threat after threat after threat. Um, but he's back home and he's, he's trying to do what he needs to do to take care of his family. And so you have to um, you have to really appreciate that. And then the other thing that I really love about this uh, and again, PKJ and I talked about it. Uh, he sees John as that architect rather, you know, more so than just the gun ho Marine type guy, which I love. Cause that's how I see John as well. I've talked about it before. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. This is a great start. There's some fantastic covers. I ordered the, um, the glow in the dark dog tag cover. And then there's also a cover by, uh, Cal, what's the artist's name? Sorry. Um, it's uh, Dave Wilkins. Um, which is this almost monochromatic green cover of, uh, of John Stewart. But there, uh, yeah, it's the one on the screen right now, the rock is showing it, it kind of in his torso, you see like a space escape uh, with planets and asteroids and nebula and all that sort of stuff. Oh, it's so good. So yeah, there's some fantastic covers. Uh, I've never been a big John Stewart guy, but I am really excited, more excited for this, uh, John Stewart War Journal series than I've ever been for any John Stewart story previously. So uh, what are your thoughts on this, Rock? You know, I, I really like the setup for this. It feels like, I don't know why, I'm probably wrong, but I think your perception is a little skewed too. I feel like we've gotten like five or six setups for this opening issue. It just feels like we've gotten teased this John Stewart Greenlander for so long because he's going to fight the Revenant Queen. It's the Revenant Queen's looking for John Stewart, the Revenant Queen, the Revenant Queen, and and the Radiant Dead. And it's really cool. It's a cool concept. And and finally we get this first issue and it's appropriately called War Journal. And this issue starts off with uh, showing astronauts in space above our Earth, or, or I guess Earth designate zero. And these astronauts, uh, this astronaut, uh, one astronaut by the name of Jane, uh, uh, she is the, she ends up being the sole surviving astronaut. She does, is basically doing a spacewalk and she comes across this ring, which is actually the, 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 the ring of the radiant dead, the, the ring that is embodied with the essence of the revenant queen. And it takes, it takes control and sort of, it sort of, uh, sort of absorbs this astronaut named Jane. And of course the Revenant Queen is now on earth designate zero and the entire, the entire spaceship uh, orbiting the earth explodes and aspects of that ship end up uh, falling to earth. And of course earth is where John Stewart is. And, and we, we finally, uh, we get some, we get some moments with John Stewart and some deeply personal moments. Philip Kennedy, writer Philip Kennedy Johnson does a really good job here of, you know, of showing that John Stewart, he's trying to, he's trying to fit in and have a normal life and he's not a Green Lantern anymore. You know, although he is in fact a living Green Lantern, he doesn't need a ring. He, he essentially is, he's basically, it's like he's living in a quiet town. He's like, you mentioned the scene where he's, he's at the, he's at the light, he's at the lights and it's a red light. He's waiting for the light to turn and it's, and and the um, 
artist Montos on the art is so good at conveying the fact that, oh my God, he's at the light and he's waiting and waiting and waiting for the light to change. And this is John Stewart. He's used to fighting cosmic battles and suddenly he's got to be patient waiting for a light to turn. And it's, and I, I believe PKJ even said in your interviews, as you alluded to, the whole idea of guys coming back from war and you go, you go from that high profile kind of fighting to sort of living the mundane life. John Stewart's not accustomed to that. And, and he's, and he's living a life with his, I believe his grandmother and, and he, and even, he even creates a construct of his, of Ellie, a young, was, I don't know, is that his daughter? He creates a construct of? It's his sister. His I sister? Think that's his mother and his sister, yeah. Right. And, and because the sister's dead and he doesn't have the heart to tell the grandmother that, that Ellie is, is actually dead. And, and so he creates a construct of his sister because he doesn't want to break the heart of his grandmother, who's, I think, slowly dying or something. It's, it's really kind of sad. And, uh, but, but, but powerful. And then in the midst of all this, he's called in, he, we know he's going to be called into battle, uh, to fight the Revenant Queen, who's from another multiverse where another John Stewart is, is, you know, defeated the Revenant Queen, but the Revenant Queen is now going to try and beat, and the Revenant Queen and her radiant dead are going to be trying to take control and destroy John Stewart and undoubtedly try to destroy the core and the earth here in our universe. And John Stewart, even ends up fighting another Green Lantern, this Lantern Veron, who is there to arrest John Stewart because the because the because the Green Lantern Corps in this continuity is now controlled by the United Planets, and the United Planets shut off. You know, said no Green Lanterns are allowed in twenty eight fourteen. It's off limits to Green Lanterns. But uh, John Stewart, as John Stewart points out, he's his own Green Lantern, and he doesn't have a ring. He's basically a living power battery. And um, in any event, very powerful. The art by Montos is incredible. I, my favorite scenes are the, are the opening sequence. It's like an opening sequence to a movie showing astronauts in space and all of a sudden they're attacked. Chaos ensues and it looks like a beautiful, it's going to be a great day for a spacewalk and turns into an utter disaster. Uh, we end up with Lantern Shepherd showing up who reminds me a lot of uh, our own John, uh, our own um, uh, Guy Gardner, but he, he he's he looks like a more sane version of Guy Gardner. And I'm just, I'm just excited. I'm really excited to see where this goes. What's the true, what's the agenda of the Revenant Queen? Why she's universe hopping, trying what, what's her goal? What's her true agenda? Uh, we're not really sure, but man, I'm, I'm excited for this. And Jeremy Adams uh, sung praises of uh, PKJ's run. He knows what's coming up and I'm really excited now too. I'm, I'm very curious to see where this is going to head. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, especially considering, you know, the power that John Stewart has now that Jeff Thorne gave him um, and, and how that's all reconciled. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman White Knight presents Generation Joker number five, uh, Sean Murphy on story, Katana Collins and Clay McCormick handle the script, Merca Andolfo on art, uh, Alejandro Sanchez handles the colors. I got to admit that um, I wasn't real excited for this one when it uh, was announced. Um just, you know, not a fan of the Joker, but, you know, if I have to have a Joker, I'll, I'll take the Sean Murphy version, uh, Jack Napier, you know, a little more sane. Um, and this started off with just this uh, sort of uh, digital version of Jack Napier, digital version of the Joker trying to spend some time with his kids because he knew uh, that his digital self was degrading and wouldn't last forever and just wanted his kids to have a chance to know the real him. Uh, and it was heartfelt and it was, it was emotional and it was, um, I, I was enjoying it. 
Uh, the last couple issues, it feels like it's starting to drag for me and it's gone on way too long. It's getting really convoluted with this Neo Joker, former Harley. Uh, I don't even remember what she calls herself now. Um, Riot. Harley. It's Riot. Riot, is it? Riot. There you go. Riot. Yeah. I'm trying to keep it all straight between Scandal Savage and Future <laughs> and Riot and whatever. Um, and, and she's with Poison Ivy and Poison Ivy sick. And uh, we find out that Jack Napier you know, wasn't even the Joker and he did something horrible. And, and, and again, the, that idea of doing something um, that you think is good, even though it's a bad thing, you're basically saying the ends justify the means, which that's just not the case in real life. Um, but at the end, it's revealed that Jack Napier has in some way um, linked up Two-Face Harvey's body to some sort of robotic unit uh, as his first attempt at AI pr preservation, which again, this isn't true AI because you're making a copy of your, yourself. Like nobody's calling this version of Jack Napier AI. Uh, it's just a digital version of him. And so uh, th this thing has really spun off the rails for me. Um, I, I've just, I sort of feel like I don't, I don't know what the point of the story is anymore. Uh, it started off being about, Jack Napier and his family um, and you know we really uh, explored a little bit of the context and, and how having him back creates a different dynamic for the relationship between Bruce and um, and Harleen with the kids caught in the middle sort of thing and you know that, that sort of relationship drama a little more interesting to me than now we have Victor Freeze and the FBI is showing up and, and we have Riot and we have a, a, a dying Poison Ivy and this brutal, uh, tortured-looking version of Two-Face in this orange tank. Uh, yeah, I, I don't get it. It's not it's not working for me. It's, it's too much. The story has gotten uh, – it's it's spun off the rails for me. I'm not, I'm not enjoying this. I'm ready for it to be over. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe you have a different take. What do you think? Uh, I do have a different take. I'm, I'm more. I guess I'm more. Uh, 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 I, I reread. I've been enjoying this series, and and one of the reasons I think it's probably because I've just I, I've actually I not only read this series digitally. I also read the comic book, which is rare. I almost just read the comics digitally. I want to buy the comics. Sometimes I'll just bag and board them. But I've been reading these comics, and I I enjoy the fact that this is a lot. There's a lot happening on, in this series at a fast pace, and I actually kind of enjoy that, and I find that there's a lot of substance to it. I didn't mind the idea of – I'm going to call it AI Two-Face because that's kind of what it is. It's not exactly AI. You're right, but it's easier to just call it AI Two-Face because at some point in the past, Jack Napier, when he was Jack Napier, not the Joker, he created AI Two-Face in his earlier attempts to create an artificial version of himself, which he now is as Jack Napier slash the Joker. And – Ultimately, in, in doing that, uh, along with that particular plot line, we, we get an origin here of Riot and Poison Ivy's relationship because in, in the, in the Murphy verse, Harley Quinn and Poison, and Poison Ivy do not have a relationship. It's this other character, Riot, who, uh, who is, has a relationship with Poison Ivy and she's sort of like the, the other version of Harley, I guess you could say, and their origin and Poison Ivy is dying and she wants to save Ivy. And the Jack Napier says, look, we, 
we can't save her. But even Jack's, even the Joker's children, uh, uh, Jackie and Bryce, they both want to save Ivy too. Uh, but Ivy is dying of something. I'm not sure what she's dying of, but it's, it's clear that, it, that they, no one thinks that Ivy can be saved. And Ivy is very, Ivy doesn't want Riot to, she wants Riot to be, to understand that, that there's nothing they can do. Meanwhile, Diana Prince, Agent Diana Prince, is letting, uh, you know, arrested Harley because she, she wants Harley to, to stay where she is and that, Diana Prince and John, Agent John Stewart can look for and apprehend Jack Napier. Uh, but very, in, in a, it's very interesting that Diana questions Harley and doesn't know that Harley's lying to her. Uh, this Diana Prince does not have a magic lasso to know if somebody's telling the truth, which I found kind of interesting because Harley lied to her and she never caught the lie. Bruce Wayne shows up, ends up, uh, basically rescuing uh, or stealing Harley away from the FBI, f- away from Diana Prince and Agent John Stewart, and they're going to go hunt for uh, hunt for their their children, uh, Jackie and Bryce, who are with Jack Napier, who are with uh, Riot and Poison Ivy, who have now come across AI Two Face. So when I say it like that, I can understand your frustration that there's a lot going on, uh, but. I, I like this new universe that that uh, Sean Gordon Murphy is playing with, or I should more accurately say Katana Collins and Clay McCormack, McCormick, who are the co-writers on it. And Sean Murphy does the scripts. Uh, I, maybe Katana Collins and Clay McCormick are doing the dialogue. And uh, Mirka Andolfo, her, her art is growing on me. I was never really a big fan of her art, but it's been slowly growing on me on this uh, series. If I didn't know better, I would have thought this was Sean Gordon Murphy's art, but I guess it isn't. So kudos to her. I think they complement each other well uh, artistically. So overall, I, I enjoyed this. I've been enjoying this series. Yeah, again, it's just for me, it's just a little – I just wish for a more focused story. Um, but maybe that's what happens when, as you said, you know, Sean, this is Sean Murphy's story. It's his idea. And Katana Collins and Clay McCormick are, are writing the dialogue. Um, so it's a little bit of a different uh, creative process than, you know, if just one person was doing it. Maybe if Sean Murphy was writing it himself, it wouldn't feel so scattered. Um, it just feels like it lacks focus. It started off as one thing and it shifted to something else. And that the flow hasn't been smooth in my mind. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Titans number three from writer Tom Taylor. Nicholas Scott is the artist. Annette Kwok handles the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Holy crap. Uh, first of all, the art's fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's Nicholas Scott. So the art's going to be fantastic um, as, you know, to be expected. Uh, but the final panel in this issue, it, it, it gave me the heebie-jeebies. Like it reminded me of some of the best kind of um, sort of invasion of the body snatchers or alien type uh, films where, you know, aliens infiltrate and they take over uh, people's bodies. And clearly there's some sort, I don't know if it's magical in nature, if it's, you know, extraterrestrial or whatever, um, but that's what's going on. So to no one's surprise, Bl- Brother Blood, who's now called Brother Destiny, doesn't have the best interest of the world at heart despite the fact that he's convinced Tempest, but apparently Tempest is, um, is being controlled as well. So uh, it, it is sort of fun to see Nightwing and, um, and Gar, Beast Boy, infiltrate the church. And then they, they're kind of like, oh, we knew it all along. We knew Brother Blood wasn't really, hadn't really turned over a new leaf and what have you, uh, because they come across these 
members of the, the church of blood who are about to do a human sacrifice. And then, um, they stop it and then they find out brother blood. Who's now brother Destiny's there. He, he was next in line to be sacrificed. Right. So is it all a ruse or is, was this the members of the church of blood sort of the last remnants, you know, trying to take over and get rid of brother. What used to be, who used to be brother blood is now brother destiny. Who's actually controlled by whatever this thing is that's controlling him. Um, but now the Titans have inadvertently helped out. Uh, I mean, I don't think the Titans certainly didn't, they didn't want any blood sacrifice. They didn't want any people killed. Um, so it's not like they were on the side of the Church of Blood, but they also don't want to be on the side of this uh, mind-controlled uh, Brother Destiny either, even though they, you know, they don't know about it. So, you know, multiple things that they need to figure out. But man, it just, it really creeped me out uh, at the end when, you know, this mind-controlled Brother Destiny kind of opens his mouth and this whatever these tentacles uh, come out and they head like they're going to go into, into Tempest's mouth and control them. It's just a really, really freaky image. Uh, and to do a full page splash on that and then to be continued. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was, it was super, super creepy. Uh, as far as covers go, there's a Jen Bartel cover. Um, that's basically, uh, Wally, uh, a kind of a youngish version of Wally, just in regular clothes. Jen Bartel, very well known for, um, her fashion sense in her covers. So uh, I really thought that cover was, was well done. Um, we didn't mention anything about any covers on, uh, on the generation Joker, but that's because none of them really stood out to me. So anyway, what, what were your thoughts on uh, teen Titans or sorry, Titans? I can going to continue uh, to call the teen Titans, but uh, honestly, fantastic art, really good art. I just, I just find the, I just find the plot plotting really, really boring i just i just find it boring i don't i don't i i find it lacks and just an it's just in no it's just so lacking in substance it's so one-dimensional it's it's when i when i when i compare this to some of the other comics we're reviewing even the one maybe i mean it, it even the one we just finished reviewing with uh with uh generation joker white knight i mean there's a lot of substance to that plot there's a lot going on i'd rather a writer give us a lot and handle it reasonably well than give us almost nothing and just rely on the art to give us this just seems there's not a lot going on i just thought this was so it was i thought i was disappointed that it's basically just nightwing and gar showing up at the church of uh brother blood and lo and behold, conveniently, oh, there's a blood sacrifice going on. It ends up, it is, it is a ruse. It, it really was predictable. It really was something. I, I don't know. It just, I, I just saw this coming a mile away. It just seemed, and and then at the final panel, I, I'll grant you that it was really creepy. That final panel, and you know, body invasion of the body snatchers. You're right. I think it's artistically, it's well done. I just, I don't find, I don't find this plot to be exciting to me at all. I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of it, and I'm really hoping Beast World is better than the name would suggest. Uh, the the next DC big event. But this just does not intrigue me at all. We've got we've had so many Brother Blood storylines, and I this Titans are supposed to be the next Justice League, and we get a Brother Blood storyline, and and so far this doesn't excite me. And I'm I'm not going to say that it's badly plotted. I just find it genuinely uninteresting. I, I'm not invested in this storyline. Even 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 somehow the supposed almost death of Wally West is boring as hell. 
Wally West, they don't want Wally West to help out because, you know, Cyborg is determined he's going to die within 48 hours because we know Wally West is going to die. Wally West died in the opening issue and I've already forgotten about it. And who cares? He might die in the next 48 hours. I just, the gravitas is gone for me. It just, it, and this, this hasn't worked. This hasn't worked for me. And this feels like this doesn't feel big league to me. This doesn't feel big league. They're, you know, they're worried about a cult, worried about the church. This is like, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm, I've been all this controversy lately with uh, Dan, Danny Masterson with the Church of Scientology. To me, this is like maybe this is like small scale news. I don't consider this big enough to be interesting enough for a superhero tale. I got I, I don't know. It's uh, again, I just it's not my cup of tea. It's uh, I'm not really invested in this storyline, but I, I, I can't deny that the art. Nicola Scott, who cannot love her gorgeous art, it's amazing, and it pulls me in. I mean, I'm buying every physical copy of this issue just for the art alone, but it's not for the plots. the The story so far has been underwhelming to me, uh, and uh, you know, and, and I'm hit and miss with Tom Taylor. I loved his uh, Dark Knights of Steel, but Titans has yet to uh, really captivate my attention. <laughs> well, uh, I can definitely say you're in the minority. It's selling really, really well. No, from my understanding, so yeah, I mean, you're, you're saying you don't like it. It's not your cup of tea. You know, I, I respect that. I, I just, I, I get where you're coming from in terms of, okay, the, the justice league is no more. And the Titans are the, you know, are supposed to take over that role. That is the, the biggest disservice that DC editorial could ever have done to the Titans. Nothing and no one can take the place of the justice league. The justice league is, is who they are. It's seven gods, basically, uh, of the DC universe, uh, making the entire universe, the entire DC multiverse safe for everybody else. That is the place for giant stories. The Titans have always been something smaller, something more intimate, something more focused on r- the relationships between the characters. Um, they are not the Justice League. They shouldn't be the Justice League, and they never should have been put in that position where people said, yes, they're going to take the place of the Justice League. It's it's time for the Titans to take you know their rightful place or whatever. That That is a huge disservice to the Titans in my mind. So, you know, if you come at it from that perspective, I guess I can see why you're disappointed. I never expected this to be the justice league, but at the same time, I think back to justice league stories that are no bigger than this. Um, you know, yeah. specifically when they <laughs> like took on Bendis, that. like Bendis is justice. League. <laughs> no, I'm talking, I'm talking, let's go back to the eighties. You know, <laughs> you, you, you want to, you know, look at things with the Detroit League or even before yeah. that when Chuck Patton was doing the art. Where they, That's true. I specifically, yeah. I specifically remember the three-part story where they <laughs> they got uh, they were fighting in this gladi- underground gladiatorial arena. Superman got mixed with a lion and uh, yeah. <laughs> the, those, those are small-scale stories. Those are, that's just the way that it goes sometimes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm – it's predictable in that, yes, we knew we couldn't trust Brother Blood. There's something going on there. But I certainly didn't expect him to open his mouth and have these tentacles come out. So I guess, you know, you're saying it's super predictable. I, I don't know. Maybe you thought about it more than I did or I missed some clues or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if if you know what's coming, then obviously it's not going to be as enjoyable. But to me, that came as a big shock. Yeah, I knew not to trust Brother Blood, but I thought that was just Brother Blood being Brother Blood. Oh, that, that shocked ideas. me. No, the the, the, yeah. the, the invasion, of the the fact that Garth is possessed by something or, or is mind controlled, that I never. Well, I mean, you could maybe infer that. I'm. I never knew I mean, that. Yeah, you said this is. That. You said it's boring and and the well, story. No, well, I'm just saying. But I mean, we know that Garth. I mean, 
you know, it's it's brother blood and it's a cult and he and cults brainwash people. So is that like a I mean, I thought it was very cool done the way it was built up. It had a it had a very sort of cinematic horror feel to it. So that's a credit to Nicola Scott. She she gave gravitas to an otherwise sort of, I think, somewhat of a mundane sort of plot, in my opinion. Uh, but the, the leading up to it, I just thought. I was just hope, hoping for more, but this this whole thing doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it has the type of gravitas that a Teen Titans uh, thing should have. But like you said, I mean, hey man, I'm in the minority. That's okay. I've been an outlier before. Here, here, here's the other here's the other part of it, right? You're like, God, this is the series has been so boring and predictable, and I haven't been enjoying it. And I wanted more. This is issue three. We, yes, it feels like this has been around, you know, forever. Huh. Tom Taylor's been working on Titans forever. Well, because we had two months off with stupid night terrors. This is issue three. It's issue three. Like it that's, hasn't that's, even really gotten right. going that, that, yet. That's a good and, point. And, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, the other thing I'll, I'll say, like if I have a nitpick or a complaint about it, I'm enjoying it, but it is, it is doing that Tom Taylor thing where it's going kind of slow. Um, and I, you know, I can't necessarily point to any one thing. Like you've, you look at uh, what we had on the first issue and they went and fought Titanio, you know, giant rat or bug or bear or whatever the hell he is uh, at a nuclear plant. And then there's some uh, animosity with Peacemaker and some hints about Amanda Waller. Then we got the second issue where, with the big revelation of Brother Blood is now Brother Destiny. And, uh, you know, they went and stopped a natural disaster. And again, I think trying to establish that, yeah, they are in that way taking the place of the Justice League, that they're they're. Uh, you know, they will go around the world to, to stop natural disasters and what have you. And then we have this issue. So not a lot has happened yet. It's only three issues in. But at the same time, it's three issues in. I do feel like I should have a little better understanding of where we're going with this. Well, um, night night so terrors didn't help. The two months no, break no, didn't help. No, there, there's didn't, no question about that. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't help at all. But if we get another three issues in for, you know, issue five, issue six, and it's still like, okay, where's this going? What's the identity of the story? Whatever, we're still not there. Then I'll probably be over there on your side, going, yeah, this is just not very good. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a, a couple more issues, you know, not least of which because Nicola Scott's art, as you mentioned, is amazing. Uh, and yeah, I mean, just based on the whole body snatchers, it really more than anything, even more than Invasion of the Body Snatchers, there was a, a movie that came out in the late. Actually, I think it was early '90s with Donald Sutherland called Puppet Masters, um, and that was just a super creepy movie with, <laughs> my, you know, aliens taking over. And uh, yeah, yeah, if you haven't seen well, it, I, Donald Sutherland was also in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, wasn't he? He yeah, was also. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he was yeah, in both. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Up next, we have Harley Quinn, Black, Bright, White, and Redder number three. There's three stories in here. The first one is called Deeply Strange Adventures, written by Gail Simone. Art by David Baldion, letters by Farron Delgado. Uh, the second story is written by Chris Condon with art by Jacob Phillips, letters by Steve Wands. And then let me get to the credits here. The final story is by Aditya uh, Bidikar, who most people know as a letterer, uh, and Juni Ba. The art is by Juni Ba, and then uh, the letters are by Aditya Bidikar. Um, yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I'm, I'm kind of over these uh, limited palette stories. Um, I will say that the David Baldion art is interesting in this limited color palette, but I prefer his art to be fully colored. Um, I, I, I just think it looks better. I think his line work looks better when it's fully colored. 
But um, what I will say is that the the version of Harley with this, because basically the story is Harley intercepts a theta beam that's meant for Adam Strange and goes to uh, Ran instead of Adam. And then the aliens of Ran obviously don't know who Harley is, but they have some other aliens invading Ran. And so they, Harley, do you know how to fight? Can you help us? Whatever. The, uh, the costume, kind of the, the mashup of Harley Quinn, Adam Strange costume looks really freaking cool. The David Baldion uh, design. But unfortunately, that's the highlight of the story for me. It's Harley being zany and whatever. And if you like zany Harley, uh, then you'll like this. Uh, I mean, I, I won't say it's poorly written by Gail Simone. It's it's scripted very smartly. Uh, there's a lot of banter, whether it's Harley and the uh, the Iranians or Harley and uh, Poison Ivy at the end. Um, but again, it's a zany Harley in a limited color palette. Pass. Uh, the Chris Condon story, uh, Jacob Phillips art, the art's very, very strong. Um I think the limited color palette does suit his art much more, uh, and it, but it's not anything really new here. It's Harley uh, at the beginning of her career, you know, sort of trying to uh, explain to us why she's so interested in, in quote unquote, helping the Joker or psychoanalyzing the Joker. And then, it, you know, it all backfires in the end. Again, not any new ground we're treading here. And then the last one, it, it, it's pretty fun by Aditya Bidikar and Junie Ba. Uh, Harley basically gets a pet cat and then tries to take the pet cat on a heist and things go wrong because it's a pet cat. It's not a hyena that's actually going to help her. Um, so that was the best of them. Uh, and the Junie Ba art in that is really kinetic and fun. But it, it's just a... Harley story. There's nothing really special or memorable about it. I won't, I won't remember it next week. So a very underwhelming issue overall. Um, like I said, the best thing about it was that David Baldione um, design of uh, Harley's costume when she's sort of mashed up with, uh, with Adam Strange. So uh, anything to add, Rocky? Uh, no, I got nothing to add. I, I unfortunately, I never, I never read this issue. I, I apologize for those listening who, who could care, who, who care about my opinion. God forbid. But I, I, I wish I could. Uh, uh, I never read it. I, this is the one comic I never read this week, so I apologize. Yeah, don't, don't, don't recommend it. Take a look at that David Baldione costume of Harley, and yeah, yeah. and move on with your day. Uh, all right. More Tom Taylor, Nightwing number 106, Taylor's the writer, Stephen Byrne on art, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters, all foreshadowing this uh, image that we've seen. They debuted at San Diego Comic-Con. It's been everywhere with Nightwing standing on the mast of a pirate galleon, pirate ship. Uh, yeah, pirate Nightwing, because apparently that's a thing. Um, so uh, exploring this idea of the hold uh, that we've seen in, in previous issues of Nightwing, where uh, it's some sort of bank, if you will, or or place uh, to to a storage place, I guess you'd say, very, very secretive and very secure. Um, And so it it starts off with this flashback, actually, of when uh, two years ago, when uh, Dick Grayson wasn't Dick Grayson, but he was Rick Grayson, right? After he got shot in the head, uh, you know, maybe best forgotten about, but Tom Taylor brings it back and he shows this random 
person uh, that apparently knew Dick Grayson back when he was in Haley Circus. Uh, and he said, hey, I have something for you. And he gives it to Rick. And he, I'm not Rick. I'm not that person, whatever. So then Rick takes it to the bar that B owns. And he tells her, yeah, I have this thing. It's not really for me in case he ever comes back. Because obviously it's the whole um, you know, memory loss and what have you. And so she contacts this guy, uh, the quartermaster. Um, and he agrees to take this package off of Rick's hands and store it in uh, locker 538 and he puts Nightwing's name on it because that's what Rick tells him to do. Rick's like, it's not mine. It's actually belongs to Dick Grayson. If Dick Grayson ever comes back, he's Nightwing. He'll go and get it. Uh, and then we flash forward to uh, present day and Heartless along with um, what's his name? Uh, Zuko, Tony Zuko. Yeah. They attack the guys that basically guard this hole to go in and uh, rob it, I guess. I don't know how Tony Zoko even even knows. Uh, he's talking about all the generational wealth uh, that's stored here, but when they get into the place where the ship normally is, it's not there. Um, and then Nightwing shows up because uh, he's tracking Heartless <coughs> excuse me, and tries to figure out what's going on. He talks to uh, Oracle. He gets some hints of uh, what might be going on, that there's something uh, that's not above board that's going on because when Nightwing is there talking to uh, the police, Maggie Sawyer, um, Oracle realizes that the faces of the paramedics aren't showing up in, in facial recognition software. So Nightwing chases after the ambulance uh, and eventually is taken to the hold of a ship. And it turns out that that ship is run by these pirates that ran the storage place. And the, the, the person that they refer to as Captain Blood, who's apparently in charge, is actually B. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot going on here, a lot of moving parts. Um, I enjoyed it. I thought the Stephen Bird art was solid. Um, but the color work, I, I think, is not best suited. I, I think his work looks better when it's colored a little more primary. And it was a little more muted here, so it wasn't um, the best line work uh, or the best way to showcase his line work, I think. Um, I mean, typically he colors himself, and so I, I don't know if it was just a deadline thing that they didn't let him uh, color himself here. Um, so uh, I did I did think it wasn't the, the best art that I've seen from from him. But, uh, you know, it, do, it does feel a little bit like um, there are other plot lines, and, and granted – you know, the Heartless plot line is one that, that's been going on for a while. At least we're getting back to that. But there are so many subplots going on in Nightwing that were, that are not being resolved. And it just feels like we're constantly introducing new ones. Um, and that can get a little frustrating. Now, granted, um, the Hold and, and whoever these guys are, Quartermaster and what have you, they've shown up before. Uh, so we're returning to that. Heartless has shown up before. We're returning to that. B has shown up before in Nightwing. We're returning to that. So maybe we are trying to tie up some things at some point. Um, but again, it does, it just feels like it's moving a little slow and I get that you want to do cool things and Nightwing as a swashbuckling uh, pirate or whatever. It's going to, it's going to get people to pick up the book. Right. But uh, I would, I would like some resolution, some, some big moments. Like we still don't have a resolution with, um, with heartless. We don't really have a resolution with, Dick's sister. 
we don't have a resolution with the relationship between Barbara and Dick, and maybe we won't. You know, there, there was all those rumors of them getting married in Nightwing 100, which I never thought for one second was going to happen. Um, but I don't know. It just feels like we're treading water here. We, we're not – I don't feel like we're getting anywhere in this book at times. Um, so, again, I am enjoying it, but sometimes it's okay to, to actually get to milestones, right, to get to, you know – markers in the story where you can go, okay, it built up to this and this big, huge thing happened. And then you kind of start down low and you build up to something else. Instead, we're, we're constantly kind of at this even level. Um, so yeah, it, it feels like it lacks impact at times. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm just talking on my ass, Rocky. What do you think? Well, no, no. I mean, you're not now. I, I Hey man, this was, this is the same guy who wrote Titans and now you're, you're sort of coming along you know, dare I say? Well, that's maybe, only, again. That's three issues bit. in. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's no, three I, issues in. This is thirty issues in. Well, no, I know. I, I, I know. I'm, I, all I'm saying is, I, I share your sentiment and I share your fear for Titans that it's going to go. Alt, you know, we're getting a lot of different dangling plots. Neither one of, and some of the plots might be interesting in and of themselves. But if they, if we're waiting forever to resolve them, and when we do resolve them, it's kind of a boring resolution, or th- then that's going to be disappointing. But, uh, but again. Tom Tom Taylor has always been really good at sort of creating a smokescreen for plots which are kind of meh by giving us really good character development. And we've got some good character. We we get to know B again. Uh, it's This is a nice callback to Dan Jurgens' run with uh, Rick. Uh, <laughs> with uh, not not uh, with Dick Grayson, but Rick Grayson. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, here's Rick Grayson. Even when he was Rick Grayson and he had, you know, it's not like he had, he had brain damage, but he wasn't an idiot. If if you're Rick Grayson and you get a package, he tells me he doesn't even know what it is. But if you don't know what's in the package, why do you want to hide it? Like he says, she asks, she actually asks him, but you don't know what it is? He goes, no, and it doesn't matter. It's not for me. Well, yeah, it does matter. And it is for you. But even if it's not for you, why would you not want to hide it in a bank? He doesn't want to hide it in a bank. Why not? Why doesn't he just give it to me to hide read, it in a dresser? Did you I mean, read that Jurgen's run? Uh, yeah, I, I got it, but I'm but I'm just saying, like, I, I mean, why does he? It, why does it matter where he hides it? I just don't see what the big deal is. I mean, I I wasn't a big fan of the decision to <laughs> change Dick Grayson and Rick Grayson, yeah. but every decision that he makes here feels in tune with the characterization that we got of Rick Grayson. Like he he did all kinds of inexplicable things, and all I could think is, well, the guy's got a got a bullet to the brain. He doesn't have to make decisions that makes that makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess. But then even, but even, but you know what's what's really really odd here is this quartermaster. This is such a big deal. This quartermaster, you get the impression we got the impression that the quartermaster has an underground secret vault where only the best of the bre- only mafia mafia godfathers and very important people or or powerful people hide things in 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 the the in this. Giant, uh, what, what do they call it? The, uh, the, they didn't call it the crypt. What do they call it? The, the hold. The hold, right. The quartermaster is putting us all in the hold. And we thought this was a big deal that, you know, the quartermaster, it was revealed like in the early Nightwing issues that, oh, by the way, the quartermaster tells Nightwing, hey, I got something for you in, in locker number 538. And this is a big deal. And all it is is a journal. I mean, th- this once again is something that just, it just seems like a big buildup and then it's much ado about nothing. And, and I'm, again, it might, it might be something, but it's just, and maybe it's just, 
this falls alongside my disappointment with Titans, underwhelming. But this just really feels sort of underwhelming. Although I will give Taylor props. This actually makes B far more interesting than she was during Jan Jurgen's run. I mean, B was sort of a love interest. They had a falling out. And to now that to find out she's a pirate now of all things. Well, that's kind of cool. Okay. All right. Now, so what's in this journal? Is it a secret map to something? Are we going to go on a treasure hunt? I don't know. But I, I just, <laughs> we'll have to see. And maybe all this is linked to beast, to, 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 to the beast war that's coming up in the big event. Maybe this, maybe what was in, in locker, uh, 538 is, is going to be mixed in with what the, with the brother blood cult and Titans. And this is going to be linked in with what's with beast boy and what's going to happen. And, and Amanda Waller and who knows, maybe this is all tied together so i will happily eat my words if this culminates in some massive cool big event that i just think is really badly named but uh we'll see because i'll i want to be able to eat my words and i happily will uh do so uh but right now i'm i'm sort of like i'm sort of buffaloed here thinking like how do i if i'm selling this to somebody if i want to sell somebody on this series i i i don't know i it's just i i got an underwhelming feeling of meh right now but but hopefully that'll change yeah again it's not the actual i don't have a problem with any of the particular plot points i just have a problem with the fact that we haven't resolved very many of them that's my issue like a lot of it's interesting i I like the idea of sort of clandestine secretive organizations you know things like we talk about uh the john wick universe right like that content the continental show i think it's coming out on like peacock or something Mm. um so this this idea of these pirates and you know they're they basically are the place where you can go to store something when, you know, you want it to be safe and you don't trust banks or whatever. Like, I like that idea. That's a fun idea. Um, but more than anything, it just feels like it's an excuse to to have um, Nightwing dress up like a pirate because, you know, that's going to sell books and you can yeah. put it on the cover I, or whatever. I, that, I, that, that's, the, that's where I have a problem. It feels yeah. – to do that feels gimmicky because it doesn't feel it, – instead of, you know, having – a fun idea like that being service to the story, it feels like the story's in service to making him, oh, hey, you know what would be a fun idea? Make Nightwing a pirate. That'll sell books. Okay, now I'll craft a story. Rather than crafting the story to just tell the best story you can, and if it ends up Nightwing's a pirate, then yeah, you put it on the cover and you promote it or whatever. And I could be wrong. Maybe it did, maybe it does or did come about that way, but it, it hasn't felt like that. It's been, it's been a while since I've, since this title's excited me. Um, but you know what? Again, we may be in, we're a hundred percent, not we may be, we're a hundred percent in the minority because Nightwing is like one of DC's top selling books week in and week out. Uh, uh, well, right. so we're told, I guess, anecdotally, I guess, although we, uh, it does seem to, uh, I wish we had yeah, more I mean, accurate sales figures. Yeah, we, <laughs> I wish that, you wish that, Marvel wishes it, DC wishes it, everybody <laughs> wishes it. It's yeah. just not, you know, unfortunately it's not possible. The only thing we can do is we look at things like Comic Hub, which yeah. you take that as a representation because not Comic Hub is not in every comic shop. Obviously, not around the world. It's only in North America, first of all, and it's not even in every North American shop. But in you know, when you look at Comic Con numbers, Nightwing's a top ten selling book every every month. So, uh, anyway, up next, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Uh, uh, I should outlaw. say that we, we there's a backup to Nightwing, uh, written oh, by Michael right. W. Conrad. Unless you don't want, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you go first. Well, I, there's not much to say, and. Uh, uh, other than the fact that this is probably the first time Michael W. Conrad that he's not teamed with his uh, uh, with Becky Cloonan, uh, I'm not 
I, I don't, this is part one of a tale. I'm not really sure what the point of it is. Uh, I, it's, it just seems to be an, an individual is spying on Nightwing and he's got Cassandra Cain and spoiler or Nightwing is just in his apartment. Dick Grayson's in his apartment making pancakes, teaching Cassandra Cain is teaching him a new fight move. And there's a lot of interaction between them and uh, it's the arts pretty decent and after after the workout routine with Cassandra Kane, Dick Grayson makes pancakes and then spoiler joins them uh, while and while and then while Cassandra Kane and Dick Grayson are making pancakes spoiler joins them and and there's a villain who's spying on them and he's thinking to himself how many girlfriends does this guy have because he's got these two he's got this gorgeous blonde and this brunette that are with him so he's spying on on dick grayson and we don't really know why he's spying on dick grayson and we don't really know what his agenda is at this point and we'll have to find out so i actually thought it was kind of funny it was it wasn't bad i'm kind of interested to see where this is going although i have to uh, uh i have to say that I, I did find it, I actually found it slightly more entertaining than the actual, equal to the main story, to be honest with you. I I thought Dick Grayson, I, I thought it was very interesting that he's, uh, <laughs> I, I kept waiting for Barbara Gordon to show up and say, what the hell are you doing with uh, Cassie and, uh, and, and spoiler, I mean, come on. Uh, Dick Grayson is a naughty, naughty boy, uh, but I, I don't think that the girls are there for the pancakes, but uh, that's just my theory. But uh, I don't know what the, you know, I'm not sure where it's going. I'm not sure why Nightwing has a backup. I don't know why there needs to be an, a backup story here. I, but it's, it's, it's okay. But for what purposes, unless it's linked to the main story, I'm not sure why we, need, why we need this, to be honest. So it's a little bit strange. But I didn't mind it. I don't mind it. Where is it going? I have no idea. It'll be, uh, because it's, I think it's still tied to the Batgirls universe, which is something that we should be moving away from, not toward. Um, yeah, I mean, the best I can figure is this guy's going to kidnap Dick Grayson to hold for ransom. He doesn't know that he's Nightwing. And the guy, his name's Mr. Hatch. He conveniently goes to take a leak when Spoiler walks in in her costume with the blinds open, which I thought was really stupid um, for her to do. I mean, street level, anybody can uh, can check it out. They don't close the blinds until they're all in their street clothes later on. Um so, yeah, it seems to be this Mr. Hatch guy has been hired to, to kidnap Dick Grayson, uh, calls him money bag, says all he does is volunteer at homeless shelters and go to yoga class. Uh, so, yeah, uh, not sure where it's going, uh, but it seems like it's supposed to be humorous. Um, I don't know how well it I don't know how well it su- succeeds on that, but, you know, it is just getting started. It's probably at least three issues long. The Serge Acuna art is fantastic. Adriana Lucas on color is very, very good. Wes Abbott handles the letters. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of like the playful tone of it that Michael W. Conrad gives us. Um, but yeah, not sure where it's going. I, I don't, unlike you, I don't read anything, uh, untoward into Dick Grayson and spoiler and uh, Cassie. I think <laughs> that's Dick my dirty mind loyal. talking. That's my yeah, I, that's just all kinds of wrong. Dick is a stand up guy and, uh, he's with Barbara. <laughs> so I don't think there's anything untoward going on. So we'll have to see where it goes. Uh, all right. I mentioned uh, Wonder Woman. Rocky mentioned as well up t- at the top. Tom King is a writer. Daniel St. Pierre on art. Tamei Moran colors. Clayton Collin letters. Can go, go check out our Wonder Woman um, spotlight where we go in depth on uh, issue number one. All I'll say here is there's a lot of depth to this story, and there's a lot that we don't yet know. Uh, and 
you know, how political it is overtly is up for debate. How political it is inadvertently is up for debate. How people are going to receive it, uh, it's going to run the gamut. There are people that love to hate anything Tom King does, uh, but I think he's a very smart writer, and I think this series has a lot of potential, more potential than any Wonder Woman story has had that I can remember in a long, long time. Whether it's um, kind of the overall setup of Wonder Woman as this out, you know, she's set up by the situation to be an outsider, to be a fugitive, uh, and then the potential of the villain that Tom has introduced. I guess it's more of a cameo. Uh, even though he narrates the issue, he doesn't show up to the last page. Um, a lot of potential there as well. So, uh, but more than that, go listen to the episode or watch it on YouTube. Uh, anything to add, Rocky? Uh, yeah, just uh, uh, certainly go check out our main uh, review of it. Uh, there's a lot of Wonder Woman number one covers, uh, so it's there's many covers to choose from. I I'm just choosing the cover A. I'm actually overall, I have to say, overall, I am extremely disappointed with virtually all of the covers, uh, as none of them have anything to do with the actual content of the story, except the one that will probably be a variant cover with Wonder Woman deflecting bullets and a full page spread by Daniel Semper. Uh, but I was actually quite disappointed with the, with, with, with uh, the covers. And uh, again, it's just, it, I get so frustrated. There are so many cool plot points in, in that opening issue, controversial though they might be the potential for really cool imaginative covers. Had there been something called communication between the writers and the actual cover artists. Oh man, we could have gotten such, great covers but instead we're stuck with covers that might be cool but do we really need to see Wonder Woman on a kangaroo jumper uh, for Wonder Woman number one that has absolutely nothing to do with the content of the comic I'm just ranting a little bit I enjoyed Wonder Woman number one uh, happy cover collecting for those who want to collect all I think there's at least eight covers maybe nine but uh, in any event, I'm a cover A guy, and I'll stick with cover A. Was there a particular cover that stood out to you on this? Or, yeah, I didn't see that. I mean, the 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 image of her in the cemetery, where she's reflecting the bullets. I didn't see that as a cover. I don't see it listed as a okay. cover. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe that one's a cover. Maybe it's not. Um, the the art germ cover. I think that's the one. It's it's cover B. It's open order, so it's not a. It's not an incentive cover. That's going to be the yeah. one that I think a lot of people are going to go for. But I think there are a few retailer exclusive covers. Um, again, it's it, you don't have it up there, but Ariel Diaz did a cover, um, and her art's fantastic. And I think a lot of people will probably want to pick that one up. Uh, but other than that, I think yeah, it's going to be the um, the art germ cover that most people are going to go for, uh, and then obviously the main cover because that's the one that's most heavily ordered. But yeah, if you want to. Check out a, a gorgeous one that's at least as as gorgeous as the uh, art germ cover. Just Google the Ariel Diaz Wonder Woman number one uh, because it's uh, it's really fantastic, uh, very bright, very. Um, there's a lot of lens flare, so maybe if you're not a J.J. Abrams fan, you won't like it, but uh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's it's really fantastic. Uh, all right, moving on. Superman number six. This is written by Joshua Williamson. Art is by Gleb Melnikov. Colors by Alejandro Sanchez. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on this rock while I pull the covers up in front of me? Uh, well, uh, Superman issue five, if you remember way back two months ago, uh, before, uh, before night terrors, Lex Luthor was attacked. Uh, the, the, uh, the, 
Uh, Dr. Farm and Graft created a series of distractions with uh, Silver Banshee and Parasite to distract Superman, which ultimately, uh, particularly with Silver Banshee using her sonic scream to disrupt uh, Superman's super hearing. So Superman was unable to hear the fact that Lex Luthor was being attacked in prison. And this issue begins with, uh, you know, with doctors trying to save Lex Luthor's life. I thought uh, Williamson did a good job. There was a conversation between the doctors where one doctor says to the other one, hey, um, you know, uh, you know, doctor, are we sure we wanted to just maybe let nature take its course? You know, take our time. Do we really need to save Lex Luthor's life? Uh, conveying the fact that this is Lex Luthor. Not everybody cares about Lex Luthor, even doctors. But the the other, the head doctor, to his credit, says, you know, we we did take an oath and we got to we got to follow it. Uh, this is called the Chained Part One. And uh, this is uh, we, we actually meet the Chained, and this is. Uh, uh, Superman is dealing with the fallout from all this. Superman's frustrated. He's really, he's, he's pissed off because he, he failed Luther. He's, we know he's already feel like he's always failed Luther. He's always, you know, even growing up as a young Clark Kent, he failed to reach Lex Luthor. He's, he's the one, he's the one mystery that Superman's never been able to solve. The one puzzle that Superman's never been able to solve. The one villain that he's been unable to reach on any metric on any level. And, and so he's got some, he's also got some distrust of Luther. And, but he, he wants to help Luther. And, but yet there's a conflict there. And where this issue becomes interesting is that Superman ultimately, uh, he discovers that there is this, um, he uses, uh, he uses Supercore to basically discover, uh, this something called Project Chained. And he discovers that Lex Luthor way back in the day created a, a prison that basically still houses a prisoner. And this, this prison is, is 400 feet underground, under, underground Riker, Strikers Island. And right away, Superman assumes the worst. He assumes that this is Lex Luthor. If Lex Luthor is imprisoning somebody there, this is Lex Luther, Lex Luthor, this poor person who Lex Luthor imprisoned. Right away, Superman assumes that Lex Luthor likely was the villain here and that this prisoner is likely there and, and that if Lex Luthor imprisoned this person, this prison is probably innocent in some way. And so now Superman has no way to have a conversation with Lex Luthor about this imprisoned prisoner because Luthor is, of course, recovering from a coma. And by the time Lex Luthor begins to recover, Superman right away, uh, unfortunately, has already released this particular villain. And this villain, upon hearing the conversation between Superman and and Superman mentions the word Lex because uh, Mercy accompanies uh, Superman to this to the prison. And this prisoner uses the chains and actually manages to essentially cage Superman. And Lex Luthor created this prison to use Whichever, whichever, whatever the, whoever the, whatever powers the prisoner has within the prison, the powers are used against them. And so you can't, your own powers are used against you to further imprison you. And so Superman is in, in fact, becomes the imprisoned at the end, ironically enough, while this person who is chained, the chained, hence the name of the part one of the story, the chained, he's going to now, he's angry at Metropolis because Luther loves Metropolis, so he's going to take it out of Metropolis. So I thought it was very interesting here. Uh, we got some more characterizations. I thought excellent characterizations by Williamson on Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane. We get a good cross-section of the Daily Planet. Uh, even the, the new commissioner of Metropolis, the frustration of Superman where he's, he's, he's doing his job, but you could tell he's upset. He's, he 
he's frustrated with his failure to stop Dr. Farm and Graft. And I thought it was, um, I thought it was very interesting in terms of how this ends up. You know, what, what are, what's the secret here? What is, what caused Lex Luthor? Why didn't Lex Luthor kill this prisoner? That's what's so fascinating. Because Lex, Lex is someone who's not afraid to kill. If Lex Luthor thought somebody was a threat, he's going to kill you. Why didn't Lex Luthor kill this prisoner? Why did he imprison him? That's a question that needs to be answered. There is, so there was something about, there was something that prevented Lex Luthor from killing this obvious threat. And yeah, he felt he needed to chain him. He couldn't kill him. Why is that? That's the question I have. And in fact, that's a question that I'm sure Superman himself is asking. And I, I, I really think Williamson continues to do a really good job here. I, I, unfortunately, Night Terror threw a wrench into this whole event, but I'm, I'm glad we're back so Williamson can tell his story here. I also like the Gleb Melnikov. I thought the art actually worked fairly well. It's, uh, and, you know, there's just just some beautiful renditions here. Melnikov's done a pretty good job. And what, what's interesting is I'm used to seeing Glob Melnikov. I remember very prominently his art on the Robin series where he was cra- crafting and, and choreographing artistically all those fight scenes. And here the, the, the art just feels differently. The line work seems to be thinner, not as thick. And I, it, it works very well. And uh, particularly with the co- colors of Sanchez. So I... Overall, I, I was impressed with this issue, and I'm I'm still invested in this story. And I like the fact that Silver Banshee now is is now doing a podcast from prison with the blessings of the Daily Planet, which I thought was kind of funny. But Light, I thought this live was good. Wire. Oh, Livewire. Live sorry, thank you, Livewire. <laughs> but no, I thought it was yes. pretty good. Yeah, Silver Banshee still uh, still free, not jailed. Uh, That's right. Still dating. So still you, dating. Yeah, you got yeah, some competition now as a podcaster now, Jay. So. Yeah, <laughs> pretty sure people are going to listen to Livewire over me. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed this as well. I, I didn't enjoy the Gleb Melnikov art as much as you did. Um, I think he's a super talented artist. Uh, you're right, his line work here is a little different. Uh, and I did appreciate that, his adaptability. You know, when he's drawing Lois Lane, for example, his line weights are lighter than when he's drawing Superman. That, that's kind of what I didn't like. I didn't like how heavy his line weights were when he was drawing Superman. There's especially in the in the, uh, I think it's the first double page spread. It almost looks like Superman's wearing eyeliner. Uh, his line weights are so heavy around the eyes. <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't really like that. Um, but as far as the story goes, uh, yeah, it, it is a valid question. Why, if this guy's so dangerous, why didn't Luther kill him? Um, you know, and I suppose the arrogance of Luther, uh, and you know, maybe he just kind of forgot about the guy because he really was lock him up and throw away the key. Um, and so he thought Superman wouldn't find out about him because if he would have stopped to think about it, yeah, it makes perfect sense that, uh, when Superman finds out about him, he would go and free this guy. No questions asked. Um, so if this guy is so dangerous, yeah, why didn't Luther kill him? Well, we know that Luther has a little bit of a sadistic streak in him. So maybe it's worse for the, to imprison the guy indefinitely. Uh, I mean, he's been down there for years and years and years without, being fed, no sunlight. You know, it does seem like uh, similar to Superman. He does get his powers from the sun because the first thing he does when he gets out is, you know, fly up and uh, to the sky and absorb sunlight. So yeah, maybe Luther thought it was worse. This is a fate worse than death imprisoning him there. So I don't know what else Superman could have done. I don't know, you know, what else I would have expected Superman to do. It's exactly what he would do. He'd assume, well, if, if, 
if Lex imprisoned them, you know, he must be good and Lex wouldn't imprison a villain. He would find a way to, you know, use him, whatever. The guy's too dangerous for even Lex to use. So I'm not a big fan of the way that this makes Superman seem like a little bit of a patsy, you know, to do something so stupid to go, you know, without asking any questions. Conveniently, Lex is unable to answer questions. Maybe if Luke's, uh, Lex isn't on an operating table fighting for his life, uh, Superman goes and asks him without just going and opening it up. I mean, Mercy does try to uh, be the voice of reason saying, hey, you know, maybe this isn't the best idea. Um, I don't know. It just seems a little bullheaded and a little um, not not the most intelligent thing for Superman. It doesn't give, give it the most thought. He, he, it's a little impulsive for him to just go down there and free this guy. And then, of course, immediately re- regret it. But in service of the story, right? It's all in service of the story. But it's not always the best idea when you have your main character do something dumb just in service of the story. Because, you know, Superman's supposed to be better than us. And to just make such a dumb mistake. Um, yeah, I don't know how well it, it sits with me. But... I, like you said, I, I'm really enjoying this uh, Superman series. It's a heck of a lot of fun. I love w- what Williamson is doing and bringing in a lot of the classic villains. Now we have a new villain. The dynamic between Lex and Superman obviously is still to be explored more. And yeah, how Superman's going to get free and just how powerful this chained guy is remains to be seen. According to Joshua Williamson at San Diego Comic-Con, this guy's just like doomsday level uh, in terms of power. So there is a danger in that as well when you introduce somebody who's – I mean, again, you, you have to introduce threats where there's actually stakes. Superman can actually lose. It has to be believable. But then at the same time, you introduce somebody that's so powerful, you you, um, you have that danger of power creep. You have that danger of having to do something that doesn't make sense, ex deus machina, in order for Superman to win the day. So I guess we'll see. Um, but I, I again I, – Melnikov's art for me is okay, but I, I really would have liked to have seen the Jamal Campbell version of what this character would have looked like. Uh, I'm just a big fan of uh, Campbell on this series. Not that uh, Melnikov doesn't do a fantastic job. It's just, again, the line weights on his Superman are, are a bit too thick for me. I love his Jimmy. I love his um, Lois. Um, and his Mercy, Graves for that matter, looks fantastic. Uh, in terms of covers on this one, there's a, there's a Mikel Yanin acetate variant, which looks like it might be pretty interesting. There's a Lieber Mayo cover B, which of course I'm going to get that because I'm a huge Lieber Mayo fan. Um, so yeah, we'll see. First appearance of a new villain though. So speculator alert. Uh, all right. Up next we have <laughs> the aforementioned hot girl number three written by Jedza, Axelrod, drawn by Amon Kane, and the Helipen, colored by Adriana Lucas, lettered by Hassan Atsuman Elhau. I, I can't not let you go first. Uh, well, <laughs> so fire away. Let's hear it. Um, Okay, I just wanna um yeah. Okay, so let me see. I just wanna be fair to you. Here we go. Yeah, so where does one begin? I'll I'll just say this. I uh here's what I think uh writer Axel Axelrod uh is trying to show here. The uh Kendra Saunders Kendra Saunders in this issue clearly she ends up um I should back up a bit. Uh, at some point in the past, 
This issue starts off by having Bruce Wayne visiting a Farlane Candor. And this Farlane, Bruce Wayne ends up in visiting this Farlane Candor. He's a, he's another CEO in Gotham. And, and Bruce Wayne notices that there is a, an nth metal feather on this young CEO's desk. And the CEO's name is Farlane Candor. And Farlane has an nth metal feather on his desk. And now jump to the future. Bruce Wayne mentions this to 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 Hawkgirl, and um, Batman and Hawkgirl uh, they're they're trying to hunt down Farlane Candor because um, uh, Farlane is linked to Vel Velpecula, who is this sort of vampire like villain who is trying to open a portal into the nth world. And she's doing it alongside with the help of the Court of Owls. So Farlane Candor is working with the Court of Owls, who's sort of controlled um, working with Velpecula. And now, ultimately, Velpecula ends up in this series, ends up in this issue betraying uh, betraying Farlane and stabbing Farlane in the chest and Velpecula. Velpecula changes him into an, a literal owl. So he works with the Court of Owls and somehow she transforms him into a living owl, an embodiment of an owl who attacks Hawkgirl. And then Hawkgirl just goes absolutely insane. <laughs> and I mean, I got to read this. I would think if I didn't know better, I would think that this was, this was, I, I just got to read this. You, you got to read this to believe it. She starts screaming. She's losing it. It's like she's she's really angry at Carter, but instead of just saying she's angry at Carter, she has to make sure and be very specific that it's actually all men she hates. I am. Uh, if I didn't know better, I'd think she, this was written by Stephanie Williams, Wonder Woman. Uh, I am so tired of men telling me who I think I am. You, Grandpa, Carter, Roy, John Jones, Zariel. So right away... Axelrod tells me that she hasn't done her history. Uh, Grandpa has always told, has her, has her family told Kendra who she is she has to be? No. Has Carter repeatedly told her who she has to be? No. Has Roy? No. Has Jeff, have, has John Jones during the Justice League run at any point during Snyder's Justice League run? Did, did, did any man, man, emphasis on men, make Kendra feel that they told her who she had to be? Because they're men, uh, again, uh, maybe there's, and even if that was the case, of all the millions of lies that Kendra Saunders has, has lived, if all these lives that she's having post-traumatic stress about remembering all these lives, am I to believe that every time she had an argument over her identity, every single person she argued with was a man? I, I, just, I just find that very hard to believe. This is overplayed. Now, I know what Axel, writer Axelrod was trying to do. This is all about Kendra Saunders being upset with Carter. She is deeply hurt and heartbroken. Uh, and I want to give Axelrod credit for this. This was what she was trying to establish, I think, that, that Carter, she feels like abandoned by Carter almost, by Carter Hall, because Carter apparently has chosen another less white version. These are her words. She goes, um, she says, I had... Um, uh, she, she feels that, um, that Carter chose a, a woman and, and rejected her because of the color of her skin. She wasn't white enough so that 
I'm assuming that she's indirectly referring to Shiera Hall, that Carter has chosen a more white hawk girl or hawk woman over her. And we don't even know if, if hawk, Hawkman has actually done that. We read Robert Venditti's series, so I don't even know what Axelrod's referring to. If she's referring to Venditti's series, uh, where there was Hawkman does have that history and he's got, he's lived many lives too. And there is Shiera Hall was in the past as well, but so was Kendra. The suggestion here that Kendra now suddenly has a hang up over race and is judging Carter for not for judging her because of the color of her skin is, I think, a misfire. I, I don't see Kendra as having a hang up over identity politics. I just don't. And I don't if, if you're trying to convey the fact that Kendra is hung up over her relationship and maybe she feels betrayed by Carter or that Carter chose Shara over her because he's not around, then there, there couldn't have been a. There could have been a better way to convey that as opposed to just suggesting that she's tired of men telling me who I, they think I am. Who? Where, like, I, I don't know where she's getting that from. I, I really, truly, I've never gotten a sense in Hawkgirl's history that men have ganged up on Kendra Saunders. In fact, one of the strongest points of Kendra Saunders has been the fact that she doesn't take any crap. I remember specifically in, in Scott Snyder's Justice League run where, where John Jones went out of his way to try to get her to to accept who she was. Uh, and so this, this flies in the face of that. Um, now, uh, I know she had some arguments with Zariel, which, I mean, obviously she's had some heated discussions with characters who happen to be men. But to I thought Axelrod overplayed that 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 issue and and where where I find it very disappointing is that this comic book unfortunately is going to give fodder to the wrong types of readers who are going to look at this as evidence of an agenda because it doesn't need to be played this way it didn't need to be written this way you if Kendra Saunders has this struggle there's a way that you could have conveyed that as opposed to having her blindly lash out uh, almost crazily as if somehow she's got this uh, this i this hatred toward men and it's all the men in her life that are doing this what's well, not the case as a matter of fact nubia nubia also question aspects of right and remember when hawk girl showed up nubia in the justice league where hawk girl was there was even that nubia one special nubia the queen of the amazons had discussions with kendra about the very thing but i guess she's not a man so she doesn't qualify i'm so disappointed in this because it didn't this this seems to me to be if I didn't know better, this was poking the bear, trying to get some controversy from certain facets of the comic book particular culture war that you you want them to comment on this because they will. They will. It's unfortunate. It didn't have to be this way. But I read this and this is like waving a red flag saying, look what I just wrote. I, I, I'm astonished by this. And I think this is this is just I, I think this is overplayed and over the top. It's heavy handed, and this is not how Ken, Kendra would act. And I, I just find it I just find it disappointing. I, I really do. And and then and it's reignited the fact her her dislike of men and all the people in her life who caused her misery were all men. She says so. It's men. And then to top it off, all the characters that she finds comfort in, all of them, all women, all of them. All women, every character, female, all of them, women. This is so heavy handed. There's no balance. And I know you can, you can, you know, I know I've had this discussion before, but having a little bit of male presence, it doesn't hurt. But to, to, to scorn the men to this degree for this character that has stood up 
and has been so heroic and to make her so imbalanced on one side of the equation. I was just so disappointed in this. It didn't have to be this way, but I'm this, this is not a character I recognize. And that's because otherwise I think there's a good story here. I'm, I'm, I think the story, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential in this story, but I was taken out of it by, by making Kendra be shallow uh, and not particularly bright, not self-aware. This is a woman that's lived millions of lifetimes. She's smarter than this. She's not this weak. She's not this pathetic. And and she knows better than this. And where even her character, her, her supporting character, Galaxy, who's supposed to be helping her out, who is Axelrod's own created character, where's Galaxy reading, trying to maybe give some sanity to her? Saying, "Hey, wait, wait a minute! I, you know your 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 hatred or where you're at in your state of mind right now. It's not just because it's because of the choices you've made in your life. Take responsibility for your choices." But she's not doing that. She's blaming men and only men in her life, and she pretty much named them all that she's ever even remotely had some sort of interest in at all. Where's her taking her own? Where's Where's Kendra standing up for herself and expressing her own agency? At the end of this comic, she 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 talks to another character, another woman, and says, "My I, my name's Kendra," as if somehow she's established her identity. And she says this to this new character, another character who is LGBTQ. So once again, re- reinforcing the fact that again, this isn't a man character she's saying it to, but th- she's this is where this is going, and. I, I'm I'm just I'm astonished by this. This is about as uh, in your face as you can get, and I, um, I I think there was a way to to elevate Kendra and to give you know if she's coming out if if this is Kendra's way of coming out and being gay, and I suspect it is. I, I do I really do think that's where this is going. I think it's fair. I think it's it, it's certainly more obvious than the Tim Drake scenario. <laughs> early on. I think it's clear that Kendra's going to discover that she's gay. That's where this is going. And um, I just, I, I think there was, uh, there, there could have been a much more, a, a, a much more meaningful way to tell it as opposed to really slapped in the face of the reader. But um, anyways, I, that, that's all. That's how I, in the, in the mortal words of Forrest Gump, that's how I feel about that. And uh I don't know. I think this was a missed opportunity and it, this was a, this was a misfire for me. I, I applaud Axel Rod and what she's trying to do. I just think it was too heavy handed how she did it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I didn't get slapped. I didn't have a pro- I didn't have a problem with it. I didn't feel like it was overt. I felt like Kendra's dealing with trauma and I don't think that, you know, as she's screaming out things in the middle of a battle with, a guy that's been turned into an owl that I'm going to make everything that she says as a hundred percent accurate. She's clearly de- dealing with trauma. She's clearly upset. She's clearly not, you know, thinking a hundred percent. I don't know. I, maybe you never exaggerate. Maybe you never say things you don't mean in the heat of the moment, emotionally, whatever. I, I do it all the time. So, you know, when she says, you know, you know, maybe you and I didn't I didn't take her saying, you know, maybe you want to go be with some better white version of me. I didn't take that as her necessarily playing the, the race card so much as there is a perception, uh, you know, in this world, whether you like it or not, that having lighter skin is better. Uh, does that mean she's saying that Carter chose share over her? I, I didn't get that. 
I went back and looked at it as you you were talking about it. I, I didn't get that. I mean, she doesn't even mention Carter's name till three or four panels later. It might be that's what she meant. But again, I, I don't take anything she's saying as like, oh, my God, this is exactly what she believes or whatever. She's calling this owl man creature Carter. He clearly is not Carter. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, this this other guy that Vilpukula has been um, – been using like she's used so many others trying to collect nth metal and what have you. Uh, and it, this guy didn't get turned into a hawk. He got turned into an owl. So why is she even using this guy as a stand in for Carter in the first place? Uh, unless she has unresolved issues there. Um, and I especially thought it was telling that while she's sort of in the middle of this battle and her emotions are dialed up to 11 and what have you, that we flash back to the scene of her curled up in the fetal position in front of her couch. She clearly has trauma that she hasn't dealt with and needs to, needs to deal with. So I'm not going to necessarily take her male bashing, if that's how you want to label it or whatever, or her hatred of men or however you put it. I'm not going to take that as being her, you know, rationally thinking her uh, being at her best place. She clearly is dealing with a lot of stuff. Um, it very well may be that she, uh, you know, that this is DC's way of transitioning her or giving, telling her story of coming out. Um, and if that, you know, if that's what it is, then so be it. Um, I, I, I kind of liked her with John Jones, to be honest. Um, but, you know, just because uh, this may be a, a situation where she dates a woman or whatever. I mean, she, she could be bi Um or pansexual even, I guess. I mean, she's lived so long, like you mentioned, reincarnated. She could have be having relationships with aliens that don't even have a gender uh, at, at some point or whatever. So um, I, I, I don't know. For, for me, it's interesting enough. I like the whole nth metal uh, idea. I like the fact that they're you know expanding on nth metal and saying it's, it's the idea of what it is and saying it's extra dimensional and what have you. Um, the gender politics, the gender identity, the trauma that um, that Kendra's going through, that, that stuff isn't as interesting to me. Um, the, the trauma is something that, I, that will be explored more in my mind. It's an important part of the story. The gender identity and, and that sort of stuff, I don't know. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just naive and I'm not seeing it. I, I'm not necessarily threatened by it or I don't care if Kendra's spouting off about her perception in the heat of the moment that, you know, men in her life have told her who she is before. Um, you, you know, you, you say that it's never happened, you know, back in her history. You know, I, I said at the beginning, I don't have the history with Kendra that you do. I've gone back well, and it happened with Zariel. Like they've, it's not like they haven't gotten into arguments, but I just wish there was more organic development leading to that because this is she's really reading in a hell of a lot to a history there, and there's no. It's like when Robert Venditti did all that history when he sort of made Hawkman more gave it substance to his origin. There, there's no organic, there, there's no past explanation. We're just now being told that well, oh, all me, this, suddenly Kendra's me, being, feeling all this. See, this I, is, I don't this think is, it is news. I don't think it is new. That's, that was, was the point I was going to make. Now, granted, I haven't read all of Kendra's, you know, the actual books that she's in. But what I have done is I've gone back and I've read like the Wikipedia entry of her history and I've read s synopses of uh, her history and whatever. 
And it, it's, it's actually, you know, you, you, you create a new hot girl and you hope, yeah, Hey, let's, let's keep this simple because hot girl and hot uh, man have had such convoluted histories. I went through, I had to re- read these things three and four times because there's so much trauma and there's so many times she's been taken advantage of, especially as a young girl and abuse and what have you, whatever. So there's trauma there. So I don't, I don't, it, this doesn't feel out of the blue to me. And again, I haven't read the actual comics. I've just read synopses of her origin, but I can understand why she would be upset. I can understand why she would feel the way that she feels, even if it's not 100% accurate. Even if it's not 100% accurate, if this is how she feels, there's legitimacy to it. And it's the point of overcoming the trauma and, you know, going back and looking at your past and and seeing what the actual truth is. Maybe she'll come to terms with it and she'll realize maybe she is projecting on, you know, John Jones or her grandfather or whomever. You know, like it's from what I remember reading of her origin, her grandfather did some pretty shitty things to her. Well, uh, in terms of kind of shuffling her around and, and whatever. So I'm going to take it all with a grain of salt again, because I, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this character whatsoever, but what I will say is that if this is how she feels, I think it's a legitimate way to explore the trauma that she's been through and bring her through on the other side with, you know, whatever status quo they want to establish with her. And the other thing I'll say, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? So, we only have what we're shown in the comics to go by, right? Like I made that point when we were talking about when you and I were debating Gotham War. We can only go by what is in the story, what we're told. You know, crime rate has dropped 75%. That doesn't seem possible, but that's what we're told. That's what we have to go by. So I can't, you know, sit there and say, well, uh, we didn't see every single conversation that, that, um, that Kendra's had with every male character ever, right? Clearly, there's conversations that happen off panel that we don't know about, but I, I, that, you can't make that argument because, again, we have to go by what we were shown in the comics. And I, I can't really speak to the, you know, the level of trauma or, or you know, what abuse she may have suffered or, or what yeah. um, perceived abuse that she suffered at the hands of men or women or whatever because I haven't read all of her stories. Right. I can only go by what is presented here. Um, but I think that's – you know, other than the fact that it's trauma, I don't necessarily f- see it as, you know, male bashing or man hating or whatever. But I, I, I could be wrong. I don't know. Well, that, that's, I'm lack, just saying um, because of the lack. I mean, look, I'm in my view, if you want very clearly, I, I, I said I know what Axelrod's trying to say. She's clearly trying to say that she's traumatized and she's blurting out. And she's lashing out. I don't believe that everything that Kendra says when she's calm and she's more rational, she won't necessarily uh, agree. She, she would probably say that while not all those men were horrible to her. Uh, but what I'm getting at is I, I think the way it was progressed from the because this is a we're at issue whatever uh, this is three. issue three now okay you could say we're only three issues in but for her to have a lash out like that I think that this is this is such a significant event when you're basically essentially reviewing the entire history of the character even some flashbacks of maybe some moments with Carter or so, even some moments with John, uh, John Jones or some moments with Zariel some moments with her father that could establish this where she remembers instead of all those flashbacks with her past lives have flashbacks with her father flashbacks with the it could have been more organically developed where this would have more gravitas when we finally get to the scene because as it stands right now it this this just feels like 
a, a woman who's just sort of lashing out and and it just this it just feels this doesn't doesn't feel like the Kendra that I know. And hopefully maybe there's three issues left. Hopefully we'll get more of an explanation. But I got to tell you, Axelrod thinks that I'm I don't just I'm not prepared to just blindly accept that uh, all the men in her life are. Are, are terrible and like none of the supporting characters in this in this issue decided to bother and, and ask her anything about her past uh, about everything that she rambled on about um, I mean galaxy is supposed to be almost therapeutic to her and I'm just I'm just astonished I I, I hope that there's more more development here but I you know we'll see I, I know what you're saying and I hope you're right I hope we get more explanation uh, because you know well, I like what you said right there. It it feels like th- this is a woman who's lashing out. That's exactly my point. She's lashing out, whether it's rational, whether it's based on reality. Uh, and before you guys all pile on me, whatever, I'm not saying that women aren't rational. I'm saying <laughs> that people in the heat of the moment can be irrational. I've yeah. been irrational before. Uh, you know, it probably happens less to me. I have such a healthy respect for logic. Uh, than you know it does for others, but yeah, she's she's traumatized and she's lashing out, uh, and I, I don't know. I, I sort of feel like, and you're a hundred percent right. There's going to be a, a corner of the internet that rips this to shreds and talks about man hating DC and a, you know LGBTQ agenda and and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I sort of feel like if you bring you know if you're bringing that eye, if you're looking for that, if you you know, tend to skew that way, looking to complain about male bashing or whatever. Yeah. That's what you're going to see in it. I don't, I don't have that perspective. I don't, whatever. I don't care. I just read the story for the story. And this is a good story. I liked, um, I like the interactions between Kendra and Batman. I like the in- interactions between Batman and Galaxy. Uh, I like the fights. I liked Galaxy the way Galaxy was handling the. Uh, the talons uh, with the metal that was in their bodies and what have you. And I, like I said, I like the idea of expanding on the mythos of the nth metal. So, yeah. uh, all right, that's way too much talk of hot girl. Uh, <laughs> way, way too much. I remember you said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have much to say about it. Uh, Sorry. I, anyway, I, uh, yeah, I know you can't help yourself. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Last book we're going to talk about in detail. Uh, save the best for last, perhaps the vigil number five from writer Ram V Sid Katayan and Dev uh, Paramanic are the artists, Rain Barreto on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, yeah, give us your thoughts on this one. Um, yeah, uh, oops. Oh, that's my pick of the week. Sorry here. Uh, yeah, I, I, we basically get, we get the full origin of the vigil. We get the s- full origin of, of Dr. Sankarin, uh, because last issue, I mean, issue four, it was revealed at Dr. Sankarin that, that all the members of the vigil are actually figments of Dr. Sankarin's imagination, that he actually created all of them. And what, what's so fascinating about this, and I want to give a shout out to the, uh, variant cover. There's a variant cover of Castle on the variant cover. I, I hope it's cover B. I don't know if it's, cause it's absolutely gorgeous. It looks like it's, it's, it's the character known as Castle, the sort of psychopath character uh, who uh, holding a chess piece uh, turned to his side and it, it's absolutely gorgeous it's definitely one that I want to be picking up so it's my favorite cover but the issue itself is we get an origin and I like how uh, Dr. Ram V incorporates the Philadelphia experiment and for those of us who are, in, in, are into 
into conspiracies and teleportation and interdimensional travel. In 1943, you might remember the, the Philadelphia experiment. It was a movie, but it's also it's also part of a conspiracy theory that the United States had a Philadelphia experiment where they made a battleship, the USS Eldridge, disappear in 1943, and that Einstein was secretly involved, and and uh, a lot of uh, crew members, 30 crew members, disappeared, and then when they came back, a lot of them were like frozen or melted into the the battleship, and it was a it's quite the thing, and it's. It was the their way they were experimenting as a way to try to to hide their their battleships from radar, and Doctor Sankran's origin is grounded in this. It's Doctor Sankran and two two of his colleagues, a Doctor Cypress and a Doctor Hep. Uh, they were the three scientists involved in the Philadelphia experiment, and of the thirty eight people on the battleship, thirty five returned except for Doctor Sankran. Uh, and uh, Dr. Cypress and Dr. Hep, they were transported to this, to this other world. And, and on this other world, they discovered that they had the ability in this other world to essentially use their imagination and their imag- whatever they imagined could, they could create reality. And they discovered that they would have the ability, whatever they manifested in their mind, they could impact, no matter how crazy or absurd their thoughts, they could impact reality in our world. And what Dr. Hep discovered, and Dr. Hep would go on to become the, the arch nemesis and the villain of this, of this series. Dr. Hep, uh, became insane. He became megalomaniacal. He got very frustrated whenever he, he tried to create he had some absurd ideas about a utopia and he, and, and even though they disappeared in 1943, uh, he's, uh, he, he keeps trying to, come up with crazy imaginative ideas to affect our world with his crazy imaginative ideas, which would manifest and become reality. And while he's trying to affect our reality with these crazy ideas, Dr. Uh, Sankarin and Dr. Cypress, they they end up, they keep seeking a way to try to escape the dimension that they're in to come back to our world. When they finally make it back to our world, only Dr. Sankarin makes it back, and it's 1969 already, and he discovers that Dr. Hep's attempts to change our world uh, have resulted in mankind gaining more knowledge and landing on the moon. So what's what Ramvi's done here in a, in, I thought in an ingenious way is that all the advancements of mankind have ironically enough come at the hands of Dr. Hep, who's been using these crazy ideas. He's been trying to force, uh, affect reality with his, with these uh, ideas and his ideas have indirectly led to technological increase and advancement in our world, whether it's the moon landing or whether it's, uh, maybe, uh, computer technology or, or what have you. And it's, um, absurd ideas which he brought he broadcasts into existing realities only they only last a few seconds but uh he tries to uh, he keeps trying to impose all of his ideas and interestingly enough this explains why why the vigil's mission is to is to is to try to prevent uh others from from uh using high tech technology because they've been remember the vigil's mission is to take high tech and prevent high tech from being used by by evil forces. Well, what's what's happened is that all this technology that seems to crop up and is being used by villains, Dr. Hep is actually creating it with his imagination and because he's trying he has his own agenda and he, because he's become megalomaniacal and uh, in order to stop him when Dr. Sankran escaped the dimension his his 
his love interest, Dr. Cypress, who used to be involved with Dr. Hep. So Dr. Cypress used to be uh, in love with Dr. Hep, but ends up in Dr. Sankarin's uh, arms. Uh, she ends up staying behind and is defeated by Dr. Hep. Dr. Sankarin comes back to our world. And as a safeguard in case Dr. Cypress failed, he created the vigil. He, in his imagination, he created the vi- members of the vigil, Dynamo, Arclight, Seiya, Everyman, Dodge, and Castle. And the big reveal at the end here is that Castle, this psychopathic character who's on the cover B that I like, Castle was actually a character created by Dr. Hep. And yet, it, so is Castle going to be a traitor? Is he a traitor or is he uh, the is he the the double agent that will betray Dr. Hep? Because it's interesting that Dr. Sankarin created all these characters as a safeguard to prevent Dr. Hep from winning. But he's also managed to get Castle on his side, who was a human being created by Dr. Hep for his own machinations. So much substance in this issue. You want to compare this to Tom Taylor's Titans. It's like night and day. There's actually substance in this plot. Uh, I'm actually invested in it immediately. There's so much crammed in this issue. I'm so interested, so invested in this series moving forward. And it's only a mini series and it drives me crazy. I love this. Uh, as far as the art, I, I didn't mind the art. It's maybe not as great as it was in previous issues, but I'm, the, the character work is so well done. The story has me captivated. I love this origin. So many crazy, wild ideas. I love the incorporation of the Philadelphia Experiment, a real-world conspiracy incorporated in this story, done in a very brilliant and creative way. Ram V has done a really good job here. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the last thing that I expected to be wrapped up in Dr. Sankara's origin and the origin of the vigil themselves was the Philadelphia experiment. What? (laughs) What? Uh, But I love it. I love it. It makes makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah, I love the whole conspiracy theory of the Philadelphia experiment. Wanting to make – I mean, there's different versions because none of it's true. So some of it here, yeah, they were trying to make the battleships invisible to radar. Some were saying they were trying to make them invisible, you know, completely. And it has everything to do with Einstein's unified theory of relativity. And yeah, uh, it's, it's a fan, it's a fascinating urban myth. So to play on that and to play on this idea of Sankara and the, the two other scientists that, that went to this, this place, this, uh, this other reality where you could manifest your thoughts, um, and have them basically be, be gods. Uh, it's, it's so interesting. Um, and again, it's, it's more, there's more here to be explored than can be explored in this, you know, what do we have one more issue of this? So, yeah, I mean, I desperately, desperately want more, uh, and what I really enjoyed is at the end, you know, after Sankara basically, you know, explains this to members of the vigil and then Castle's like, yeah, well, let me, let me explain to you how you're all going to react because, you know, we, it's ex- sort of, uh, broken down like Castle's abilities at the beginning, how he can basically on a long enough timeline where anything is possible, he, he can kind of see the path that people will take, right? Like based on, what he knows of them and, you know, just probabilities and what have you, he can sort of predict the future. He can sort of figure out what people are going to do. And yeah, Sankara talks about, 
you know, why he made each member of the vigil and why he gave them the powers that he did. Um, but then when it comes to Castle, after everybody else leaves, uh, Castle goes, I'm not, I'm not one of yours, right? I'm one of his. Um, I'm, I'm somebody that Hep created, not somebody that you or Madison created, which is so interesting, right? It, that gives so much context to what's been stated before by Sankara when people ask, well, why is Castle on this team? Well, because if he wasn't on our team, he'd be on someone else's team, right? And we took that as this really interesting context of uh, of Sankara knowing how dangerous uh, Castle would be and wanting to keep an eye on him. But this raises that to like the you know nth level, right? Um, of saying the whole idea of the vigil, right? The whole idea of the name of it, and and what Sankara has said, like why he created it to keep an eye. And to make sure that humanity doesn't artificially advance itself so that Hep's plans will come to fruition, right? So the idea of being vigilant, the idea of keeping an eye on things, the idea of, uh, you know, these great technological leaps of mankind that aren't happening naturally but are uh, um, basically because of the machinations of Hep, that's what Sankara has dedicated his life to, right? Keeping an eye on Castle, the enemy of uh, of my enemy is is my friend, right? So he knows that uh, that Hep is his enemy. But if Castle is not aware, right, up to this point he hasn't been aware that he's a basically a, a manifestation of Hep. Then it's kind of along those same principles, right? Uh, let me maybe have an idea of what Hep's up to by turning one of his own creations against him. Like that, that's, that's that's so fascinating and so interesting, and uh, and like I said, it, it provides great context to that idea of why is Castle on our team? Uh, well, because I couldn't let him be on anyone else's team. Uh, I've, I can't let him out there uh, being um, uh, an instrument of Hep and, and allowing Hep to basically achieve his goals. Right. So. Um, yeah, uh, wasn't at all <laughs> what I was expecting. This this dimension uh, at neon, as it's called, it's so interesting, uh, so, such a big idea, so able to be explored. Um, and the other part about this story and these characters is it, it's such a grounded story uh, in a lot of ways. Like um, you know, it's it's not like any of these p- powers or abilities. He, he didn't create Superman, right? He didn't create Sentry. Um, he didn't create some, you know, all-powerful being. And, and we know why. You know, he explains that. He, he, he can't draw too much attention to, to what's happening. So, you know, the, it's so interesting what Ram V has done here what, and, and Sankara through, you know, the instrumentation of Ram V in creating this team that have just the right sort of set of powers to be vigilant and to stop Hep's plans um, and to have it be believable, to have it be real and to really make the story in the beginning feel very grounded with characters that aren't like uber powerful and, and world beaters. Right. Um, and then to, to, to start with that personal interaction and that level of power for these characters and, and to make them feel relatable and they've all had trauma and they've all been through various things to take that and then expand it in this issue, which this hasn't come before, uh, anything this big to expand at this issue with this giant idea of at neon and, you know, making your thoughts reality and, and just this huge, huge 
power level that anybody that's able to go to at neon and, and sort of manifest that power. That is so amazing. That's such great storytelling. And uh, if you go back and listen to my interview with Ramvi that I did at San Diego Comic-Con, he mentioned specifically, yeah, there's something that comes up in issue five that turns the whole series on its head. Well, now we know what it is, right? Like yeah. how amazing to start with something that felt so grounded. And you know, I don't want to say that it felt small, but it felt intimate, right? Uh, it felt like an intimate story just based on the power, again, the power levels that these people have. They don't, they don't feel like they're people that are, you know, out there changing the world on that level, like, you know, a Superman or a Wonder Woman or what have you, changing the course of rivers and, and stopping natural disasters. The more clandestine, you know, they go in, uh, you know, on the prowl, steal technology, keep it out of the wrong hands, what have you, to then flip it to this thing that is so huge is just amazing. And again, I, I, I go back to, we cannot, we cannot let the series end on issue six. Oh my God, this, this series and this story and this team and these characters need to go on for years, for years and years. Yeah. It cannot end. It cannot end. It's so, so good. Uh, and yeah, the art, you know, you got a couple of artists on it and the, the art hasn't been as clean as it's been in the past, but I, I totally forgive that. Uh, they did a good job of conveying the story and conveying the, this idea of, you know, big power and Atneon is kind of this desolate place. Um, so the, the art did what it needed to do, but this story is just, oh my God. I mean, every, every time an issue of the visual comes out, you know, I don't necessarily tell myself, okay, that's not going to be my, you know, I don't, don't purposely say that's not going to be my, um, my book of the week, you know, <laughs> an open mind, but, but it is, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, how can it not be when we get this type of storytelling? We get these types of ideas. I mean, this is just, it, it stands head, head and shoulders above not just anything that came out this week, uh, yeah. but anything that DC is putting out. Um, and, the, you know, the only other thing I would consider is Wonder Woman because that's got so much potential as well. But that's a yeah. that's a known quantity, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom King's doing something different than Wonder Woman. But at the end of the day, it's still Wonder Woman. And he, yeah. and, and credit to Tom King, you know, I mentioned this in our, in our detailed review of it. It says right in the first dialogue box when the new villain is narrating the story. Well, this is the story of how Wonder Woman beat us. So we know Wonder Woman's going to win the day, right? Like that's not a surprise. At the end of the day, the heroes win and the villains lose. That's just the way it goes in comic books. Um, so from that perspective, it's not – it's a known quantity, right? Wonder Woman's going to win. Man, I got no idea. If we had 30, 30 uh, issues of the vigil, I wouldn't have any idea what to expect. I wouldn't have yeah. any idea what to expect. Ramvi, yeah. oh my god, brilliant. Yeah, no, I I agree, and uh, it makes makes it easy. We don't have to we don't have to waste time arguing about pick of the week. That's for sure, because this is this is a no brainer this week. This was just an exceptionally well done, such a breath of fresh air, some really actual new fresh ideas in a DC superhero universe. I imagine that. So thank you, Ram V. Yeah, I mean. Just brilliant. Uh, and I will also say uh, there's a cool uh, B cover by Nimit Malivia of Castle, and it's got a maze behind him. Uh, the regular cover is great as well. Um, it has Castle sitting there um, in front of a chessboard. You know, that is kind of where he gets his name from, the idea of, you know, uh, a castle in terms of, you know, he can see so many moves ahead. He can see all the decisions people are going to make and, and what have you. So, uh, yeah, really, really great. Uh, well, that does it for all the, um, the single issues this week. We, we covered everything that, uh, 
that came out. Uh, as far as uh, collected editions, trades, what have you, uh, there's a few out this week from DC. Uh, Batman Superman World's Finest Volume 2, Strange Visitor, hardcover. Um, so that collects um, World's Finest 6 through 11. And again, that is the uh, the story that we mentioned earlier with Boy Thunder uh, that it sounds like um, World's Finest is going to be going back to and being explored a, a little more coming up. There's also Batman and Robin Eternal Omnibus hardcover. That is the weekly series. Um uh, that came out a while back. There's so many writers on it, Snyder and Tynan and um, Seeley and Ed Brisson and Jackson Lansing, Colin Kelly, Steve Orlando. Um, so this collects the whole thing, issues one through six. I, I honestly can't remember when that came out. I think it was back in, I want to say like 2014 or 2013. Um, but it, this collects the whole thing. Uh, and it, that it came out weekly over six months after Batman Eternal sold really well, then they did Batman and Robin Eternal. I, I never read that. Like I was so Batmaned out after Batman Eternal, uh, but I heard it was pretty good. But again, I, I never read it, so I can't say for sure. Uh, we've also got the Joker, the Man Who Stopped Laughing, Volume One, hardcover. Um, we, you know that that one is coming to a close soon. That's the Matthew Rosenberg story that uh, goes twelve issues. This is the first six issues. Um, it's been kind of convoluted. I almost would say wait till it's all over. Buy both trades if you're a big Joker fan and read it all together. Um, might make more sense. Uh, there's also a Batman Nightfall omnibus. Nightfall is the story back in the 90s, uh, mostly from Chuck Dixon, uh, where Batman got his bat broken by Bane. So this collects Batman Vengeance of Bane number one, Batman 484 to 500, Batman Shadow of the Bat 16 through 18, Detective Comics uh, 654 through 666, and Showcase 93, uh, issues number seven and eight. So... That tells you what year it came out right there, right? Uh, Batman uh, or Showcase 93. Uh, we also have the Batman One Dark Knight trade paperback. That's the jock story where Batman's trying to transport a prisoner. Uh, it was okay. Uh, if you're a fan of jock art, you probably want to pick that up. Um, there's also Batman The Audio Adventures trade paperback. That collects the entirety of the series, uh, issues one through seven, plus the Audio Adventures special number one. And then finally, the last collections that, that is out this week is Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries Volume 3 Trade Paperback, which collects uh, issues one through six of the second series of Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries. Um, stories by Sholly Fish and Ivan Cohen, Matthew Cody. So if that's your jam, uh, look for it at your comic shop. So uh, as Rocky said, no mystery on um, Book of the Week this week. Pretty easy call. Uh, the Vigil. Don't forget to head over to uh, our Wonder Woman review if you want more detail on that. And uh, yeah, check out my recent interview with David Nakayama and uh, more interviews to come. People have been reaching out a lot lately wanting to come on. So I'm not one to say no if I can make the time. Uh, anything else you have coming up that you want to tease, Rocky? Uh, uh, no. Well, I, I do plan on... Uh uh, you, you spoke and interviewed uh, Trevor Lankiewicz on his uh, upcoming uh, superhero story, a uh, comic, the uh, R- Rise, right? Rise, yeah. Rise, and so I'll be having him on the channel and interviewing him and having him talk about that. Hopefully this week, and uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. So that's the only thing else I got going on this week. So what about yourself? Yeah, I've got uh, some a couple of creator uh, owned uh, people coming on to talk about their books. And then uh, have some other feelers out for a few things. Uh, just trying to line up schedules. 
with some people to come on and, uh, and talk about things. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget, if you're listening to audio only, head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. We always have some great conversations in the uh, comments. Be sure to ring the notification bell and subscribe so you know when new comment, uh, new content comes out. Conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you want to be sure not to miss any of those upcoming interviews on the Comic Source, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.